looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. everybody this is wrong episode 450 kind of a landmark episode and for this occasion we are joined by now recurring guest david lambert and he's come back to talk about the history of wyatt earp and all the various movie adaptations if you did not hear his previous appearance which was wrong real episode 436 the many lives of billy the kid it's one of my all-time favorite episodes of the podcast definitely go back and check it out but today we're gonna be switching gears to quite another legendary figure but mr lambert welcome back to wrong real Thank you for having me. I had so fun the last time, uh, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to diving into all these films. Well, as I mentioned on the previous episode, I enjoy Western movies, but I'm almost like a complete blank slate ignoramus when it comes to actually doing research on the Old West. I mean, I will, in, I will occasionally read like a Cormac McCarthy novel or a Larry McMurphy novel, works of fiction, but you actually have the advantage over me in terms of having a legitimate interest in the subject. So it's just cool to get, because not only are you a movie fan, but you just bring an additional perspective. But before we dig into all the conflicting details about the man, Wyatt Earp, let's pause real quick and just talk about you and your work as an artist, because in our last conversation, I was totally blown away by elements of your career that I was unaware of at the time. I thought you were just an erotic artist on Facebook, and then you talked about this entirely different career. So what have you been up to as of late? Uh, well, right now, still still, uh, still doing, doing my artwork, um, working on some writing projects uh, here and there. I'm not going to get too into those but until they actually develop. Um, and, um, yeah, just, uh, do doing, you know, um, haven't, haven't done really any, any work for the coroner recently. I sometimes do forensic work for them, uh, on, uh, basically, uh, un unidentified victims. Uh, they don't have fingerprints or dental records on file. Then I'll do a composite sketch that they will then try to get, uh, put on, put on their website so people can identify the person. But that's always, you know, it's a case by case basis. Obviously it's not, uh, there's not like a, uh. Uh, steady stream of unidentified victims out there, at least in my area. So, which is, you know, probably a which good is a thing. positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want like this laundry list of unidentified dead bodies out there waiting to be identified. Yeah, exactly. 
but yeah, that's you know that's basically it. Uh, you know, just continue, just continuously doing doing um, doing my artwork, and um, I'll be in a, a few shows uh, later. Do you ever just pinch yourself when you're drawing these beautiful women? Just think, I'm drawing astonishingly beautiful girls who have voluntarily decided to participate and collaborate with me on these works of art. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those things that, uh, it, it keeps, it keeps me going, you know, if I was, <laughs> if I was just doing landscapes, I don't know if I would, if I would be as much of, uh, be as consistent with, uh, pumping out the artwork that I do. So, I hear you. no pun uh, intended. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so yeah, it definitely, you could say I, I'm, uh, very inspired uh, almost all the time. I so. am equally inspired every time I check out your feed on Facebook. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's that's basically just what I've what, but uh, what I've been up to since uh, since the last episode. Now I don't know if we got into this on our last recording, but what was the catalyst that prompted you to take such an interest in the old West? Because obviously there are plenty of people out there who like cowboy movies and westerns and watching Sergio Leone movies, etc. But your interest seems to run just down to the bone. And was there a specific catalyst for that or is it just a, a gradual growing interest of yours uh well you know i mean when i was when i was a very young kid i i i loved i loved westerns i loved cowboys and stuff you know i'm talking five six seven years old and then you know as i got older i got more into action movies and stuff and basically the the catalyst was the wild bunch uh because i'd heard that it had you know just the most amazing gunfight and i was a big fan of uh action films and so i was like i gotta check this out and so, yeah, I was pretty much blown away by it. And then from there, I, uh, you know, checked out, uh, you know, the other Peckinpah films, the Leone films. And I really got into uh, spaghetti westerns for a while. And then, uh, yeah, and it just kind of inspired me to kind of to, to not only get into to older films um, and just check out the whole, you know, scope of the genre, but then just also like the actual reality what's true what isn't what did the movies get correct what do they get wrong just uh i don't i'm not sure why but it's just it's just something that kind of just always appeals to me the idea of uh, the american west has a you know it has a very um old testament quality which is also you know one of my things that i love the old like reading of the old testament and you know biblical type of like all that kind of crazy stuff and so it's like you have this other sort of um, I don't know I'm getting too pretentious but anyway I just I just love that aspect of uh, of um, you know the lawlessness these guys supposedly bringing law you know these uh, guys that are you know from Europe that are have sort of they've got Victorian standards but they're out in the wilderness and there's just this the clash of all these different cultures and then of course you have the indigenous peoples and. And it's just it's just a fascinating thing of people sort of making up their own, uh, carving out their own destiny, making up their own law. And as you'll see, and as we'll probably see in this episode, that this idea of who was a who was a criminal and who was a lawman and everything. Yeah, the just lines got kind of blurry. It's like wearing a badge <laughs> doesn't necessarily make you right. And in some of these situations, we'll see that there are badges on both sides. <laughs> it's not like the badges aren't to lose any and all meaning. Oh yeah, I mean it's the it, just like with the Billy the Kid, the, the Lincoln County War, um, the the Earp story has all, another conflict where you have uh, uh, two different factions that are both, um, you know, um, legally lawmen, and <laughs> so so you know uh, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's so very very complicated uh, 
there's just a very, it's a very complicated history, which it's just, the, and the more you learn about it, just the, it, it just is it, uh, so much of it is so weird and it's endlessly fascinating. For me. Agreed. But what's interesting with this character versus Billy the Kid is Wyatt Earp actually had a pretty long life and he lived long enough to be around to kind of supervise and uh, cater and look after his own reputation and his own legacy a bit. And he even worked on a few movie sets and got to know some actors like, I mean, famously, William S. Hart, William S. Hart and Tom Mix were there at his funeral and Tom Mix w- openly wept. John Ford talked about being you know, basically a kid in the movie business, getting to meet Wyatt up a few times and asking him about the famous gunfight at OK Corral. And he claims he used those stories as the inspiration from the scenes in the film uh, My Darling Clementine. But it is interesting how he managed to live long enough to see... Probably not the beginning of his legend. It seemed like his, his real, the real myth-making surrounding Wyatt Earp took place after his death. After, and obviously we'll get into this, but it seems like starting with the movies in 1932, which he did not live to see the release of, that's when the myth-making really started to get underway with a couple of different books that were largely works of fiction, kind of, sort of, based on history. But where does... Where does the fact separate from the fiction? In your view, what is the, the, the true story of Wyatt Earp? And obviously we can zig and zag in and out of this as we go, as it conflicts with the various movies we'll be discussing. But just for people out there who might not be aware of the true story, what is the tale of Wyatt Earp? Uh, well, well, Wyatt Earp, he was, he was uh, uh, born in uh, 1848 in Illinois. Uh, he had seven siblings. Uh, his, his, uh, father was a constable and, uh, basically that kind of, he, he, his father basically got him a job as a constable. Um, he, he married, uh, he married a woman and, uh, you know, she was pregnant with his kid and she ended up dying of typhoid fever. Um, and, uh, after that he sort of, um, he sort of drifted into becoming, uh, he he always vacillated between being a lawman and being a gambler and being something of a schemer, something of a scam artist. Um, and so there's there's multiple uh, actually in the historical record lawsuits against him as he was supposed to, you know, collect uh, um, licensing fees to fund local schools. And, uh, you know, he skimmed some off the top and he, he just he did some shady things. He was involved in a. The theft of two horses uh, with uh, with a, a couple other co- accomplices and was actually arrested. Um, he ended up escaping and fleeing. Um, I think this was in Missouri, so he fled Missouri. Uh, the two accomplices were exonerated, so perhaps he hadn't actually stolen the horses, or you know, I, I'm not sure. But you do get all these things that are kind of show him as somebody who uh, was always was always kind of trying to make trying to make a fast buck essentially and so from there he he drifts in and out of being a, 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 a essentially a pimp starting saloons starting gambling houses starting brothels things like that um, and his brothers kind of did the same thing he ends up becoming a a a, a lawman in in Wichita but the thing is like he's often portrayed as like the the the, the town marshal, you know, like the head guy, he's always like a kind of an, like an assistant marshal or a temporary marshal or something like that. He, I don't, I, I, um, I, I could be, I could be wrong, but I don't think that he ever was like the main, you know, town marshal. Okay. So, um, he, um, he 
gets in a fight with a political opponent in Wichita and basically loses his job there. Um, then he goes, uh, he goes to, uh, Dodge city and, uh, becomes, becomes Errol Flynn. Yeah. Becomes Errol Flynn becomes a lawman there and kind of drifts, uh, but, it, but also a Pharaoh dealer and, uh, also still running brothels and things like that. Um, he had multiple, uh, ladies that would claim that they were Mrs. Earp. So he had these common law wives, which were always essentially prostitutes in Dodge city. He gets into his only shooting before the gunfight of the okay corral, some drunk cowboy shot through a theater and a bunch of different lawmen went out and shot at him as he rode away. Um, and he, he ended up dying a few days later from wound. Earp later claimed that he was the one that did it, but we don't actually know if that's actually the case. So we don't even know if uh, White Earp actually killed anybody before the gunfight at the OK Corral. What he was known for was keeping uh, calm in you know, uh, very, what would otherwise be a very stressful, dangerous situation. He was known to just walk up to these uh, you know, drunken, uh, armed cowboys and just, uh, just walk straight up to them, intimidate them, and buffalo them over the head with his gun, which means just hitting him over the head um, with his pistol and, and arresting him. So It's amazing more people didn't die from that. I mean, you're basically being hit on the head by a giant chunk of iron. Like, how is that not fatal? Like, talk about, like, head injuries and in football and things like that. Like, that's way worse. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, uh, it, it doesn't seem that anybody had been killed from it, uh, at least uh, from Wyatt Earp's hand. They had good hard heads but, back then. So it's kind of an interesting thing because it seems like he was actually a really good lawman, or at least a really effective lawman. Uh, but at the same time, he's running, he's he's running scams. He's he's freely cheating people. Uh, he's running brothels. So uh, it's just an interesting thing. So he actually seems to be an effective lawman, but he's you know he's still shady and and uh, it wasn't like the law was some big important thing for him. It was actually just another way to uh, make money and protect himself and. You know, it's he's self-interested like anybody else, and so it's not like a that's not necessarily a mark against him. Um, but uh, but you know, the idea that he's like a guy who really wants to, who's a real law and order kind of guy, um, isn't uh, isn't really too factual. Um, anyway, so he goes uh, uh, he goes searching for an outlaw, Dirty Dave Rudabaugh, who uh, we've talked about briefly in the last episode because he was a confederate of Billy the Kids. Um, he's played by Christian Slater in Young Guns 2. Uh, anyway, while he's looking for Dirty Dave Rudabaugh, he gets a tip that uh, Doc Holliday, a, uh, uh, a gambler, dentist uh, with tuberculosis from Georgia, um, that Doc Holliday knows where Dirty Dave Rudabaugh's whereabouts are. So that's when him and Wyatt Earp meet. They become friends. Um, Doc Holliday saves his life. Uh, we don't exactly know how, but Wyatt Earp claimed that Doc Holliday saved his life at one point. Uh, so anyway, from there, um, Virgil, Virgil Earp became a lawman in, uh, in uh, Prescott, Arizona, and uh, then he got appointed deputy U.S. marshal in Tombstone. And so he told uh, uh, Wyatt and then their older brother James to come out, and so they got to Tombstone, uh, which was a boom town. James uh, becomes a barkeep. Wyatt becomes a shotgun messenger. Wyatt Earp, uh, he gets appointed as um, um, a county, de- a, like a, a county deputy sheriff. Basically, one of their jobs was to collect taxes, 
and he, they would get uh, for the whole county, and they would they would get ten percent of the taxes. So the money that he'd be making off of that in our day, like uh, you know, with inflation for our time, would be the equivalent of a million dollars a year. That's pretty so, good. <laughs> So it was very lucrative to 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 be a sheriff, you know, or it could be very lucrative to be a lawman in that time. Um, so that was one of the other reasons why he always kind of drifted into being a lawman because he had the nerves for it, but also it, it was, uh, you know, um, it, it was you, he was you, you'd make so much, you could make so much more money, and it doesn't have the risk of trying to start a mining, you know, what I mean, claim or any of that. So. Um, anyway, so in Tombstone at this time is this, uh, or, or in this area, in this county, uh, Pima County, uh, or Cochise County, actually, Cochise County, um, there's this faction known as the Cowboys. Cowboy was not a common term at that time. You'd be called a drover or a cowhand. Cowboy was a derogatory term, and it, it very specifically meant rustlers. So there's this gang, and a rustler, somebody who basically just goes over to Mexico, steals cows, and brings them back, or just steals cow, steals cattle in general. Yeah, just anyone that's stealing cattle, and so yeah, basically they go into Mexico, they steal cattle and bring it back. Um, it became such an issue that it almost kicked off another border war between the United States and Mexico. Uh, Mexico actually ended up having to uh, post like uh, different forts and things like that, you know. Kind of, it's it's kind of ironic with how things, you know, <laughs> in our current political climate. But Mexico was trying to trying to keep them out, trying to keep the Americans out. Um, and so the cowboys essentially started um, uh, rustling in um, in America now from from you know American ranchers and stuff. And so that became even uh, obviously worse for uh, you know people on the American side of things. Uh, the Cowboys were also um, affiliated with uh, uh, Sheriff Johnny Behan, who was kind of a corrupt sort of guy. It gets very, it gets co- very convoluted here. But what what ends up happening is, uh, you know, the the Cowboys are kind of they're throwing these elections for in Behan in, in in favor for their candidates and all this other stuff. There, there, there uh, becomes this conflict between them, them and, and, and the Earps because I don't want to get into all, to all that. But what ends up happening is uh, there's a stagecoach robbery and two people are killed. Now, Wyatt Earp, he wants to run for county sheriff because um, he'd lost his appointment that he'd had before. And so he makes a deal with uh, Ike Clanton and Frank McLeod because the people that had – perpetrated this robbery were uh cowboys so uh ike clanton and frank mcglory say that they are going to uh, uh give wider the the information of who actually had done it and wider was going to give them the uh reward money um and basically this was uh wider attempt to make himself look good so that he would win the election so he could be the sheriff right but then he makes another deal with Johnny Behan, uh, and Johnny Behan, he basically the deal that they make is that Wyatt Earp will not no longer run for sheriff, so Johnny Behan can basically get the appointment, and then uh, Johnny Behan would appoint Wyatt Earp as the under sheriff. Okay, uh, well Johnny Behan reneges on the deal because there's some kind of conflict. Uh, it might be related to the fact that Johnny Behan's girlfriend was Josephine Marcus who was 
claim who was uh, this uh, this Jewish woman who claimed to be an actress. There's no real evidence that she was actually an actress. It's very likely she was actually a prostitute that Johnny Behan took to Tombstone. Anyway, she falls in love with Wyatt Earp. So that was probably one of the other reasons why Johnny Behan did not want Earp as his undersheriff because he stole his woman. So uh, so things escalate. Uh, Ike Clanton starts getting worried that Earp is going to tell people that he made this deal because if the Cowboys know that Ike Clanton is ratting out his friends, uh, they're likely to kill him. So he's going around town. He's getting drunk. He's saying he's going to kill the Earps and uh, all this other stuff that basically is going on. Eventually, in October of uh, 1881, uh, things have come to a head. Um, and uh, the cow, the, there, there's some cowboys in town. They, they're wearing guns on them. One thing that a lot of Western movies, most Western movies get wrong, is that most big towns did not allow you to carry guns in town. It just, uh, with, with the alcohol flowing and drunken guys with their guns, you know, it just was a, it was just a problem. Yeah, and we so, see it in Ballard and Buster Scruggs. You walk into the saloon, you got to put up the guns. <laughs> pretty much. So, so Ike Clanton, Billy Claiborne, uh, Billy Clanton, Ike's uh, younger brother, um, Frank McClary and Tom McClary are in this uh, vacant lot near the OK Corral with their guns on them. And so the Earps, and Virgil Earp was the marshal. So he's he's basically the head lawman. It's not Wyatt Earp in this instance, okay? Uh, er, uh, Virgil had deputized him and their younger brother, Morgan, um, uh, a few days previous. So they go with Doc Holliday to go disarm the cowboys. Uh, it escalates. It becomes the gunfight at the OK Corral. Billy Claiborne and Ike Clanton run off. Frank McClowry... Tom McClary and Billy Clanton are killed. It, it lasts about 30 seconds. And weren't they like uh, six feet from each other? Like it was like almost like point blank range when everything uh, went down? Uh, pretty much. And it, it, when you're firing uh, black powder weapons at point blank range, you're basically just going to have a big cloud of, of white smoke that you're not going <laughs> to be able to see through. Um, Wyatt Earp is the only person that walks away from the gunfight um, unharmed. Uh, Doc Holliday got skimmed by a bullet. Morgan Earp was hit. Uh, Virgil Earp was hit. Uh, it's very possible from the sketch that Wyatt Earp drew of the layout of the gunfight, it's very possible that Wyatt Earp it, did, in fact, accidentally shoot his own brother, but we don't know. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> so, so, but it's very, because the thing is, once all that, I mean, to be honest, it's amazing that three people were even killed uh, just because there's so many instances of, of people being drunk in the Old West in a bar firing these black powder weapons at each other at close range and just completely missing each other, you know, and then just, you know, uh, uh, so you got to carry a shotgun and yeah. And then the booze would wear off and then they'd become friends again, you know? So, so it, it was, uh, so it's amazing that anyone was actually even killed to be honest. But so now there's a trial and it goes on for a long time. Uh, um, Earp, the Earps are the Earp party is exonerated, but um, but you know people are like weary of the Earps. They don't. Some people like them, but there's just these two factions, and they think that the Earps are these guys. They were known as the Fighting Pimps, and there's just a, there's there's so many different. Yeah, they they, they just resemble have the a, Sopranos. It seems like more than like lawmen. It just seems like yeah, they were bullies and gangsters in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
And the thing is, not that they were know, like you know, but it's not like they weren't any worse or better than the, like the the surroundings in which they found themselves. Yeah, I mean, there's a clear, there's a clear to me, a clear demarcation point between the ARPs who who are uh, self interested and, and and willing to do some shady things, the uh, the cowboy faction, which are uh, outright open, rustlers, open open murderers. Uh, yeah, and so there there is. Uh, it's basically a shade, a shade of gray and then, and then just black. So, you know what I mean? So, uh, so the, the herps are in this instance, in, in my opinion, are the better people. I mean, they are not, um, they're just, yeah, they're just shady. You if know, they had been shot in, if, if the reverse had happened, the, do you think that the history books would, would have been written in quite a different fashion? Obviously history gets written by the victors. Like, would the the Clantons and like the McClowries and the Claiborns all still be remembered in quite uh, the same villainous light if they just mowed down all three of the Earps and Doc Holliday then, then and there? There is a lot of contemporary uh, um, for that era writings of people who lived in Tombstone and stuff, and 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 um, the the Cowboys had a terrible reputation. Gotcha. So. They 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 were they were bad people. Like they Stephen were Lang and Tombstone. It was like the yeah. the classic Ike Clinton. Yeah. So, but there's also there's also you know the possibility that let's say that uh, they do kill the herbs. Let's say that they're you know uh, they have a political stranglehold. Who knows how things would be written? Who knows what kind of you know business? You know what I mean? You, you know. You, it's like you know you've got the Kennedys making their fortune bootlegging or whatever, right? So, and and then becoming a this familial dynasty. So who knows if like had the Earps been killed, there would be some kind of Clanton dynasty. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe we would have had a Clanton as a president. But I uh, uh, I don't know. The, but I, the, I do know that the Earp that the that the Cowboys were considered bad people at that time. Fair so, enough. But uh, so anyway, after that. The cowboys retaliate. Uh, a few months later, they shoot. They ambush Virgil Earp. He gets shot in his left arm. He lo- loses uh, uh, use of his left arm. Then, a few months after that, they ambush Morgan Earp while he's playing pool. He basically they shatter. He gets shot in the back. It shatters his spine. He dies. You know, within an hour. And the day after um, uh, Morgan Earp is killed, uh, Wyatt Earp basically gathers up a posse. Because he doesn't feel that the political, there, he doesn't feel that the political situation uh, is going to be, um, it's it's not going to help him out. There, the, the law isn't going to work in this instance of getting the the, the people responsible um, convicted. So, so he um, he gathers up this posse to go after uh, the cowboys and the people responsible for the murder of his brother Morgan. Um, as Virgil Earp is uh, taking a train. Uh, out of the territory, uh, they find out that Ike, that Ike Clanton and Frank Stilwell uh, are waiting there to basically finish the Earps off. But Earp, since he knows that they're going to do this, gets the drop on him. Ike Clanton runs off, as he always does. And Frank Stilwell gets shot by Wyatt Earp uh, at a close range by a shotgun. And the rest of the posse shoots basically shoots Frank Stilwell's body up. They found five different... Uh, clearly five different uh, weapons had been fired into him and uh, somebody who had witnessed it said he was the most shot up man he'd ever seen. Oh, so Jesus. they really, made a, mess out of, <laughs> they really made a mess out of Frank Stillwell. Uh, after that he goes, he kills, uh, 
Indian Charlie Florentino Cruz, who was one of the Cowboys. Uh, at one point, the, uh, the 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 posse gets ambushed by the Cowboys and Curly Bill Brocious, who was one of the heads of the Cowboys. Um, he uh, basically Erp kills Curly Bill Brocious with a shotgun. Who he runs back to his horse as he's under fire from all these cowboys. He tries to mount his horse, but his gun belt actually slips around his ankles, so he can't he can't get up on his horse. Uh, and he's finally able to get the gun belt off of his legs, and he's on he gets on his horse. A- afterwards, he checks, and his basically his coat had been shredded. He would had bullets through his pant legs. He had bullets through his hat. Uh, all these you know all these holes. He'd be basically been shot up, but none of the bullets hit him. In fact. Uh, throughout Earp's life, he uh, was never uh, hit by a bullet. He was never injured in, in combat that way. So, And this is in an era where it seems like if you got a splinter, you'd probably get gangrene and like lose a limb. <laughs> like It seems like, like Very possible. death was well, lurking around Vir- every corner. Virgil Earp, it's actually funny. Virgil Earp, later, he still was a lawman, but he had to get parts of his joints removed in his left arm, which was, you know, useless. It was just basically limp. Anyway, his arm would bend the opposite way. It would bend both ways. Oh. And so, so they said that he'd be riding horses and his arm would just be wobbling, Flopping. bending. Oh, yeah, <laughs> get a sling for that. <laughs> yeah, very interesting image. So, so anyway... Uh, so, so after this, now, uh, Johnny Behan and stuff, they basically, the Earps, the Earp faction has to leave Arizona. Uh, they've got all these indictments for murder against them. Um, and so they basically split out of the territory. Wyatt Earp, basically, Wyatt Earp had a common law wife. I actually forgot to mention that she was a laudanum addict. Uh, he left her for Johnny Behan's woman. So Earp and Holiday end up having, um, a falling out because, Holiday calls him a damn Jew boy. Oh shit! <laughs> because he was dating uh, this Jewish woman. That was basically their falling out. Um, Doc Holiday ends up dying in 1887 in the sanitarium from from tuberculosis. Um, Erp, uh, basic, basic, Erp, uh, he stays with uh, Josephine Marcus or Sadie Marcus uh, the rest of his life. Johnny Behan's woman. He basically goes from Boomtown to Boomtown. Trying to start saloons, try doing scams here and there. I mean, up until his seventies, he was pulling, he was pulling scams like cheating soldiers. He 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 uh, had a bunco game um, near a, near a fort. I can't remember exactly the location of it, but he's he, up until his seventies. He's still pulling scams and cheating <laughs> cheating people out of their money. So uh, he he was a, also famous for throwing a boxing match where he was a referee and so he was in all the papers and he had just a terrible reputation from the from the okay corral gunfight to all the you know uh murders that he basically committed to avenge throughout his his life while he's like what it seems like most of his deeds were pretty much largely unknown to the majority of the american public i mean it seems like while we think of him now as this huge western figure it's not like he was some giant like celebrity traveling around well, yeah, he. I mean, he was he was known like he was known like notorious, like but it wasn't like but he wasn't like this larger yeah. than life David Bowie figure. No, not at all. Uh, but he was known, and he just had a terrible reputation. Anyway, he ends up he ends up. Uh, Bat Masterson, who was a friend of his, told uh, Stuart Lake, who was uh, 
uh, worked for Teddy Roosevelt actually, because Teddy Roosevelt liked these frontier characters, and so he brought Bat Masterson to the White House, and Bat Masterson was telling T- Teddy Roosevelt, "Hey, if you want to know the story of the West, you need to talk to Wyatt Earp." So that is actually what inspired Stu- Stuart Lake to go find Wyatt Earp um, to uh, basically write his story. But in his time, Wyatt Earp did go to Hollywood to work as a technical advisor. Uh, he wrote a letter to William S. Hart, uh, who was a you know the big like authentic gritty cowboy actor of his time. Yeah, he was the first uh, John Wayne. Yeah, and so uh, and said, "Hey, you should make a movie about me because people have the wrong idea of who I am." So Wyatt Earp started realizing that he had a lot of bad press about him, and he was starting to rewrite his uh, history already then and so William S. Hart actually is the first person to to put a fictionalized version of Wyatt Earp in a film it was in his film uh, Wild Bill Hickok so it's like Wild Bill Hickok teams up with Wyatt Earp and Calamity Jane and these other lawmen to clean up uh, I can't remember maybe it's Dodge City or maybe it's Abilene I don't know and that's the first appearance of Earp uh, in a film but he supposedly met John Ford uh, John Wayne claims that he based his persona off of Wyatt Earp. I feel that's probably apocryphal, but it's a possibility. Uh, Stuart Lake writes Frontier Marshal about him after he dies. And that's published, what, like in 30 or 31 or so? Or Yeah, it's it's published, like, I think, a year after he died. Because uh, Wyatt Earp, I believe, died in uh, 1929. Correct. Um, so, yeah, and Wyatt Earp died of like a bladder, like a chronic bladder infection or something. To that effect, um, in case anyone was wondering how that happened. Yeah, we probably had like uh, an aging prostate that was making it hard to urinate. <laughs> yes. So, uh, but his but his wife actually was very uh, protective of 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 what they were would allow him to them to say about him. It's still a thing that people like their big Wyatt Earp fans say Wyatt Earp never drank. Um, I don't think that's true. I think it was just that it, it, his books were written during Prohibition, and they didn't want to portray him as this, you know. Uh, this drunkard, but, um, uh, so she was very, she wouldn't, she didn't allow anyone to know about his laudanum addicted wife that he left for her, who eventually died of a drug overdose, um, uh, or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but after Frontier Marshall, then, um, Walter Noble Burns, who made Billy the Kid essentially, uh, famous, um, wrote a, a book called Tombstone, the town too tough to die. I think that was the title of it. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and from there it just kind of, uh, just kind of blew up. Yeah. That's basically the story of Wyatt Earp. And that kind of leads us into, I guess our, the first film we're going to talk about. Yeah. Law and order, <laughs> law and order 1930. But it's just incredible to me that we look up to and are fascinated by these larger than life wild west figures, but how the, the myth of Wyatt Earp, or at least the persona of Wyatt Earp as we understand them is largely a 20th century creation. And that was totally, that totally blindsided me while I was preparing for this episode is that what we know from the movies from 32 onward is basically the Wyatt Earp of myth and legend. Whereas the Wyatt Earp from like the, the decades prior to that, there were probably, I mean, who knows how many, like, how like how long of a cast of characters there might be out there who are equally worthy of possibly being adapted into all these novels and movies. It just it seems like we just happened to land on this one guy and obviously participating in a few of those major events, like the stories there waiting to be told and craving to be told. But it's just incredible how 
it just keeps perpetuating itself. And we've seen what, like 50 movies and TV shows based on this guy at this point. And people just keep telling this story over and over again. And it just seems like we enjoy retelling this tame tale again and again in, uh, in continuously different ways. Yeah. I mean, it just, I mean, it has the ingredients of the guy coming into the town, taming the town, you know, uh, and, uh, um, What's what's interesting about the uh, about most of the stories, most of the retellings of the wider Blanchard, at least on film, is that they they climax it with the gunfight at the OK Crow because that's the most famous event. But the thing that I think uh, that really solidified Earp's legend is the aftermath of hunting that. down all those bad guys. Yeah, hunting down those guys. You know, that's really kind of uh, in many ways you know the, the 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 thing that really lends it that air of of of, of legend was well, into the okay um, corral almost kind of happened by accident whereas hunting down all the cowboys was planned and it was and like it was it was something he thought out in advance he put together a group of guys it was like a systematic series of assassinations whereas the gunfight at okay corral it's almost like oh we're gonna go down and disarm these guys oh shit now there's a gunfight and it's all hell's breaking loose where it just seems like it just kind of blew up in their faces a little bit but what also it's interesting about the gunfight at the OK Corral, a lot of these movies we'll be discussing, a lot of the movies climax with it. Some of the movies use it in the middle. And some of the movies start with it and use it as a jumping off point. But obviously this is like the main catalyst for the drama in a lot of these movies. I mean, it's the reason that he's not a footnote in, you know what I mean, in some kind of, you know, in like some Southwest archives somewhere. You know what I mean? Also, people love buddy stories. Having Doc Holliday as like, like this assassin slash drunkard slash, you know, dying Southern aristocrat as his, as his buddy just adds so much more romance and drama to the story. Johnny, do you realize that you're the first fellow to be hung legal in Tombstone? Am I, Mr. Johnson? Yes, sir. You're the first man to be hung in this county, according to Hoyle. You don't say, Mr. Johnson. Yeah, that's right. Everybody will be watching you. Will you hang me, Mr. Johnson? All right, so let's dig into Law and Order 1932 adapted by one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, John Huston. It's just a fresh-faced youth on this movie who's basically working, probably got the job because his dad, Walter Huston, is the star. But I had never seen this movie prior to preparing for this episode. And I have to admit, it was pretty goddamn good and mean as a snake and like really just a really rough movie. There's a lot of like shoving in the face and a lot of just, there's just a lot of shoving and hitting throughout the entire movie. <laughs> and the ending was totally earth shattering i couldn't believe how fast the editing was and how violent the shootout was i mean I, I, you look at like sergey eisenstein's or like his like crazy rapid fire montages from the late 20s they're not that different from the the shootout that we see at the end of this movie it's kind of hard to find but if you have the stars app you can actually watch this movie for free and it's been beautifully well preserved i never even heard of this movie until you recommended it to me so how, how did you first uh, come come across law and order I had heard about it as I probably just because it's the first uh, adaptation of the of the Wyatt Earp story. So I think I'd heard about it for a while and I'd always wanted to see it. It's so hard to find. And uh, one day I 
I think I just found it. I think I found it on YouTube. Someone just had uploaded the whole movie and, um, and I, yeah. So I was like, I, I've been wanting to see this for so long. So I watched it and I absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, it is ab- totally my aesthetic. Uh, it's just, it, 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 what it, what it is, is it captures, it captures the feeling of the writings at the time of, of that era. So, um, the, the, the weird gallows humor of it, um, the sort of, um, taking a, having a historical basis and sort of exaggerating these certain elements, it just, everything about it just falls in line with, uh, the contemporary writings of the day. Also, what they're talking about in the context of this movie is not that old at that point. Like, it'd be like us making a movie about the, the late 60s. Like, 1932, going back to like 1881, you're talking about like 50 years difference. It doesn't, for them, it wouldn't have felt like ancient history. No, not at all. And and there are even like plenty of references in there of like uh, how the main character who was named Frame Johnson because uh, it, um, well, we'll get into that, but how he's how he's you know fifty years ahead of his time. The, one of his friends keeps saying that through, uh, a few different times in the movie. But yeah, it's an adaptation of a novel called Saint Johnson, and it is a fictionalization of the Wyatt Earp story. They changed the names, so Wyatt Earp becomes Frame Johnson uh, instead of him coming to Tombstone with you know three of his brothers. He comes with one brother, a friend named Deadwood, who is just basically dressed like a hobo and then his friend Brant who is played by uh Harry Carey Sr. Yeah, well, he was yet uh, another giant massive star and like you even see like his son appearing in a ton of John Ford movies. His son even appears in Tombstone, which we get into toward the end of the episode, but it's incredible yeah. like these these family bloodlines that keep popping up again and again throughout these movies. Yeah, and so and so he plays Brant, who is the Doc Holiday surrogate. He's wearing a top hat. He's the guy who's just always ready to just kill anybody for pissing him off. Um, and of course, you know, uh, Harry Carey Senior was the uh, the uh, inspiration for you know John Wayne grabbing his arm at the end of the Searchers. Absolutely, that's so, his move. Yeah. Also, it should be mentioned that the author of this book was W. R. Burnett who wrote the book that the movie Little Caesar is based on. And if you look up uh, W.R. Burnett online, he's got so many film credits from High Sierra to Scarface to The Great Escape. I mean, both as a novelist and as a screenwriter, he is a true, genuine powerhouse of his day who remained relevant for many decades. But Law & Order, I guess, would have come out like the year after Little Caesar. Definitely. And it has a lot of, uh, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but there are these moments, especially at the end where the main character is almost talking to the audience about, you know, like, and, and you kind of feel that that was this commentary about the gangsters at the time, you know, the bootleggers and stuff. Cause there's this very specific people don't want law and order, you know? And so, so it's a very interesting movie because it's very funny. Like I said, it has a very dark sense of humor um, but it's but it's also very bleak, and that ending is this like essentially that the ending of High Noon. You know, like everyone acted like it was such a big thing that he throws his badge in the dirt at the end of High Noon. But but or at uh, the end of Dirty Harry, or <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Walter Houston does the same thing at the end of this movie. Yeah. You know, so um, but um, some of the things that you start to see 
that are kind of based in history or, you know, the rigging of elections. Of course, it's uh, which is what the Cowboys would do. And but, they would shoot you uh, if you didn't vote the way they wanted you to. <laughs> yeah, this one they've they've kind of taken that idea of rigging these elections and and kind of uh, you Amped know it up a making, bit. yeah making yeah amping it up. But also this idea because it's a it's a funny thing because you know if you watch like uh, some of the stuff about Tombstone or whatever they're like oh yeah we're making it to where Wyatt Earp isn't this big lawman. He comes to town uh, with his own interests and kind of gets sucked into it as if this is like a new revelation for the movies. But almost every one of these Wyatt Earp movies is always about him coming into town with some other idea and then getting sucked into being a lawman. You know what I mean? And that's it. So it's from the very first Wyatt Earp movie, they already have that aspect of the character, which uh, as I've already said, was not the real it's it's a weird it's a weird dichotomy there because in reality he would want to become the lawman but because it was lucrative yeah it's, an, so it's a revenue movies, stream <laughs> yeah but in the movies it's always kind of seen as the honorable thing for him to do and he's tr- he's trying to do something else he's trying to make money in a different way you know so that's kind of a through line that you know, uh, continues on in, uh, up until Tombstone. With well, also, when most people who are making movies, they are in love with older movies and they have a very hard time kind of disassociating whatever story they're telling from whatever inspired them. And obviously, Sam Peckinpah was a huge fan of My Darling Clementine, and you see echoes of My Darling Clementine in movies like The Wild Bunch. So I feel like once you're involved in the world of film, it's very hard, not whether it's consciously or, 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 or unintentionally, Borrowing from or kind of reinterpreting and using what you've seen in past interpretations. Well, in the scene after Brant is killed, uh, Frame Johnson goes out and he's yelling about how he's going to be a reckoning and he's going to do this and that. Yes. And Kurt and Russell it's all so, the way. <laughs> yeah, so clearly the hell's coming with me scene. Um, and, th- you know, there's just other, there's a lot of uh, pieces of dialogue that are. Uh, repeated in the movies later. My, my and favorite stuff. dialogue is the dialogue with Andy Devine, who people will remember as like he was uh, he was driving the stagecoach and the movie Stagecoach, and he would pop up in a million John Ford movies. Here he's super skinny, but you can't like once you've heard his voice in one movie, you'll you, you, he's impossible not to immediately recognize. But seeing how. Wyatt basically convinces him to be proud of the fact that he's going to be the first person hanged legally in Tombstone and how excited he becomes. He's like, are you going to do it for me? Like, it was such a weird, just, I mean, it's quite literally, quite just astonishing bit of gallows humor that I don't think I'd ever seen anything or heard anything quite like that in a movie. I have to say that whole sequence with Andy Devine is one of my favorite sequ- like favorite things in any Western like I abs- I love everything about that. I love Andy Devine. I find him hilarious. It's interesting to see him when he's young because he's actually kind of a handsome guy. And not many years later, I mean, in Stagecoach in 1939, which is seven years later, he's already a a tank. Huge. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, just yeah, this this whole his whole character and Johnny Behind the Deuce was a real guy who Wyatt Earp supposedly protected from being lynched. Um, he kind of disappears from history. He never actually went through with a hanging, but that whole aspect of like him being the first legally hanged person in tombstone and how excited he is. And the day of the lynch, like the hanging, he's there like eating candy and reading the newspaper. And he's just like, you know, I want y'all to know that this is the first legal hanging and I'll see y'all in heaven. And they clap. And it's just like, (laughs) (laughs) it's so weird and so funny. Uh, but also so dark and 
it's such a it's it's so strange but i love that kind of thing and that totally falls in line with just um it, uh, my perception of the west like because it makes you, you wish there had been more pre-code westerns because we just just did it in a big episode of a pre-code hollywood and before 1934 the hollywood movies were just meaner darker rougher much more cynical much more savage and i, I think a lot of times we think of the hollywood western we basically look at stagecoach up through like uh shit i mean i mean i guess for all intents and purposes we kind of look at it up from there through the man who shot liberty valance is like the classic hollywood westerns of like the 40s and 50s but man the early 30s were such a right period we have so many great gangster movies from the early 30s it makes me wish we'd gotten a whole string of westerns as well yeah and and that's one of the other things is that it's it's one of the reasons why I like to watch like '30s era westerns, and they can be rough, you know. They're, you know, the, in terms of how they're made because of you know limitations with sound and stuff and like that. And the camera moves in this are pretty rough as well. I was I respected the fact they got the camera moving, but when you see some of these like dolly shots and crane shots, it's almost like shaky cam, but they're not doing it on purpose as shaky cam. <laughs> yeah, it just becomes shaky cam because they 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 can't do any better. Well, I I love I actually love that they were still trying to kind of keep a silent film like silent movie like aesthetic of just kind of a free roaming camera because yeah. so many with oh, great title so cards almost like a book. Yeah, so many so, so many of the early um, you know sound pictures are so like stage bound. Stage bound. Yeah, exactly. So so I'd like that they actually did that, and I and I like kind of the rough aspect of it. You know, I highly recommend this movie to any any fan of westerns or movies. But you have to kind of know what you're getting into when when you're going to watch it. it there, it's rough around the edges. But I feel like almost yeah. all early '30s movies are. Whether you're talking about like you know like Animal Crackers with like the Marx Brothers, or you're talking about Little Caesar, like any cool flick from the early '30s, the technique is just going to feel like like you'll hear like echoing like on the stage as people run around. But that becomes kind of part of the charm if you're really into early 30s movies yeah yeah uh, exactly and so you know you you have to know going into it but i still highly recommend this yeah, movie it's, it's a badass flick I, I was i was completely totally blindsided by just uh by how strong this one was and it's so quickly paced hour 15 minutes i mean look at They're wyatt all- earp in 1994 which is three hours and 10 minutes and then you compare it to this an hour and 15 it's yeah economical storytelling is something i very I, I value very highly yeah and one of the other things that is interesting is like you said john houston um wrote it and uh and and then many years later he directs the life and times of judge roy bean and there are scenes that are like uh, almost, you know, there's the weird hanging scene where in Judge Roy Bean. Uh, Do you have that, anything to say in your defense before we find you guilty? Yeah, and then also the thing of a guy taking a bullet and drawing a mustache on a poster, and you know the guy in Judge Roy Bean gets shot uh, uh, for for shooting the the picture of the actress Lily Langtree. Absolutely, and the, dead, the dead, shot him, dead, dead. Yeah, and so there's a. I mean, obviously, this movie's not as like cartoonish as. The Live of Times is Judge Roy Bean, but they have that same sort of frontier humor, which I like. And I and I like these 30, 30s movies before, like Stagecoach and John Ford kind of codified what you would expect from a Western. Absolutely. And also, there's so many Hollywood Westerns in the 40s are just, they're a little, they're so wholesome, they kind of give you diabetes sometimes, and they're like, they're so <laughs> primary colored, and like the good and evil are so stark. Law and order, everybody's fucking mean as a barrel of snakes, and I really appreciate that. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, and and the other thing too is uh, a very young. Uh, well, I don't know, very young, but a young um, Walter Brennan is in this. Yeah, absolutely. Who will, yeah. who will come up again in some of these later movies. But yeah, Walter Brennan, yeah, skinny. And we were so used to him being this toothless, <laughs> kind of slack-jawed guy swinging a broom and hitting John Wayne on the fanny in Rio Bravo. You forget that at a certain time, he actually could he could walk and he could move and he could do things. Yeah, sometimes when you watch these old movies, you will see like Walter Brennan, like I think in The Invisible Man, uh, the, uh, you'll you'll see like Walter Brennan in like a bit part. And it's just such such strange to see him. People Before, like making fun of him, but there's a great line on my darling Clementine when John Ford said, "Like, can't you even get like get onto your horse properly?" He's like, "No, but I've won three Oscars for acting." Like Walter Brennan <laughs> was a legit actor. He won Best Supporting Actor three fucking times and was nominated a fourth in the late '30s and early '40s. He was no slouch when it came to uh, getting a whole shelf full of Oscars. Not at all, and also. You know, one of the other guys who, you know, uh, won three times, Danny Day-Lewis, the third time he wins for Lincoln, he's doing a Walter Brennan impression. Yeah. I swear he is. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and before that, the other one he won, he was doing a John Huston impression. So. <laughs> Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. if you if you want to play gnarly old bastards, you, you definitely look at these old movies. And you, you there. that's what I miss, these, these character actors who feel like they were, like, just plucked from just some, like – if, if they hadn't been discovered by the movies, like what kind of lives would these guys have led? And when I look at today's crop of people like Miles Teller and Shia LaBeouf and, you know, Jared Leto, all these pretty face youths that are beautiful and stylish. And like, you guys have no personality and no character. I, I need some fucking Walter Brennan rough edges. Well, that's the, well, that's the thing. I'm a big, I mean, I love method acting. Sure. But I'm, I'm a big, uh, uh, proponent of just like, the guy who has the persona, who does the thing that he does, and you don't ever really see him act, you yeah. know? And, uh, you know, um, I don't think John Wayne made a ton of great movies. I think he's only ever made a few pretty decent ones. But um, but he's amazing. Like, for me, I, I people act like he's a shitty actor, but for me, he's just... Pop like, in Red River and they'll be convinced otherwise. Like anytime someone says that John Wayne can act, I'm like, well, then clearly you haven't seen Red River because while he's doing the John Wayne persona, it's a twist on the John Wayne persona and it's evil and it's dark and it's disturbing. Or watch him as Ethan Edwards in The Searchers. I mean, also, speaking of John Wayne, uh, there's nothing more ridiculous than seeing an interview from 1971 igniting Twitter in a state of total. I'm like, first and foremost, that interview's been around for decades. People already got yes. outraged about it many, many decades ago, but now y'all are discovering it for the first time. Like, clearly, there are not enough things to get outraged about if you're having to go through the back bends and like look at <laughs> in order to find fresh things to get outraged about on Twitter. It's like, yeah, like our 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 appetite for outrage has like exceeded the existing supply, so people have to go looking for the old stuff. Because there were so many young fans of John Wayne out there who just didn't, you know, who just didn't know. <laughs> I mean, young moviegoers in the 60s and 70s, even then they had a hard time with John Wayne. Like David Thompson, a film historian who I really admire, he talked about showing Red River to some of his students, like late 60s, and how at the time, because of the Vietnam War and John Wayne's support for it, the class was just up in arms, just flipping the fuck out and just could not surrender over to the movie or appreciate it in any way, shape, or form, whereas David Thompson, the, the teacher, was like standing up and applauding at the end. So th this is not a, 
a new thing to have young, very idealistic film fans hating John Wayne. So it just, it, the more things change, the more they stay the same. This shit's been going on for 50 years at this point. Well, you know, he's a man of his time, just like Wyatt Earp. That's why I don't want to sound like I'm being too harsh about like Wyatt Earp as being kind of this scam artist kind of guy. I, you know, like, cause there are, there is, there are people that are anti Wyatt Earp and we will see some movies that come later that are part of that oh, kind yeah, of like, like a doc I mean. <laughs> is a piece of shit. Uh, and I don't subscribe to that. I just think he was a guy who was out for himself and, and, uh, um, you know, and did some bad things. Well, but the uh, laziest form of film criticism imaginable is when people judge actors or performances according to the morals and values of 2019. I'm like, yes, he probably didn't separate his plastics and aluminum from like the trash. And like, he probably had moral shortcomings, <laughs> but guess what? He was born in what? 1840 or whatever the fuck he was born. Like, yes, people yeah. from different periods of time have different values. And I just, I, I, I just kind of shake my head in bewilderment when I see people trying to apply their own oftentimes fairly recently adopted standards of like codes of conduct and behavior and making that wanting everybody throughout all of human history to rigidly adhere to those same standards. Like, sorry, Genghis Khan probably didn't share your values, but he's still an interesting figure. <laughs> yes. Speaking of John Wayne. <laughs> yeah. Who also played John Wayne, bringing things full uh, circle. Excellent. All right. Well, on our list of movies to discuss, we didn't really bring up Dodge City when we were preparing, but I did at least want to take like just one second to mention Dodge City. He's not called Wyatt Earp in it, but Michael Curtis, who was no slouch as a director, we obviously did Casablanca. We did a huge Michael Curtis episode on Wrong Real uh, quite a while back. But Dodge City, if for people who want to see what a primary colored early 40s Western was like, and they liked uh, Wyatt Earp stories, Dodge City is out there ready to be discovered. And you'll see a lot of familiar faces from like the adventures of Robin Hood and things like that. So if you like Michael Cartes and you like Wyatt Earp, Dodge City is at a bare minimum worth mentioning. You will have to refresh me because there are a few uh, Errol Flynn Westerns and um, is Dodge City the one with the huge saloon brawl? Exactly. That's what Mel Brooks was referencing at the end of Blazing Saddles. Yeah, I love Dodge City. Then I get him confused because he did Virginia City and he did he did a few different ones, and so. But I got to see Dodge City in the theater in L.A. at the at the uh, Lamley Sunset Five, summer of nineteen seven ninety seven, at this giant Western revival. So it was that was the one time I saw it, but it was a ton of fun to see it on the big screen. Oh yeah, I I really like that one. It's uh, it's there. There's like a there's a certain class of westerns that are just western, you know, and they're not necessarily like. Uh, there's not a whole lot of like uniqueness to them or anything like that, but uh, they're just uh, it's just everything that you kind of want. Well, my stepdad who was born in '34, he would get dropped off of the movies and he would just stay for the day and watch the same movies over and over again. Those are the kind of westerns that he just ate up. He just like they're very fun, they're very innocent, they're very enjoyable, and you can just yeah, you could just kind of surrender over to the adventure. Is Dodge City the one where the little kid gets dragged and dies? That I can't remember because, like I said, it's been almost 22 years <laughs> okay. since I last saw it. Oh, okay, yeah, all right, but yeah, that, I, I actually I recommend I recommend any of those Errol Flynn westerns. I really like those. So. Yeah, especially if they're directed by Michael Curtis or Raul Walsh. Those were his two big go-to directors. Yeah, I don't think that he gets enough credit for his for his western movies. But but the one of the reasons is that he was not named Wyatt Earp, and that is that uh, Wyatt Earp's uh, wife or widow, uh, was very protective of his image. And so, um, 
So after Law and Order comes out, which changed the names, uh, Frontier Marshall, which was an adaptation of the Stuart Lake book, comes out. They change his name to I think I think they changed his name to Michael Wyatt because she threatened to sue them. Um, I haven't seen that one. That one is uh, that one is uh, I think the mid- 1934, or the 1939, because there are two of them. The, yeah, the, I'm talking about the 34 one. Okay, yeah, because so, in 1939 you have Randolph Scott being directed by Alan Juan, with, uh, with and it's a great poster. Just says "I'm the Law" and Tombstone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I have seen the 1939 one. So I don't know. I don't know how much uh, the 1939 one takes from. Um, Takes from the thirty-four one. Yeah, it stars George uh, O'Brien, directed by Louis Seiler, and it's only an hour and six minutes long. It's incredible. These were feature films. Yeah, yeah, I know. You you could you could pack three of them together, and they, it would be shorter than uh, Wyatt Earp with Kevin Costner. So. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, but the Randolph Scott one I have seen, um, and uh, we I, I, we won't have to get too into it um, Alan Juan is a genuine pioneer and, and he's definitely worth mentioning I mean, he's one of those forget, true forgotten pioneers who made a shitload of movies in like the teens and the 20s and I just love the fact that he managed to stay busy and active into the late 50s but he's one of those guys that you know Scorsese Scor- Scor- calls attention to him in a personal journey through American filmmaking and I just feel like he he also oh he pops up in Who the Devil Made It Peter Bogdanovich's book about old, old directors so Anytime his name pops up, I always like to shine a light on it. Oh, okay. Very interesting. I'm actually really not that uh, familiar with him or his work, so that's interesting. Um, uh, but uh, so I won't I won't delve too much into the Randolph Scott movie outside of its relationship to My Darling Clementine. So I guess that would be the other big one that we would uh, uh, start talking about. Yeah, 1946 uh, and one of the most entertaining westerns that I've ever seen. Howdy. Good evening. I'm Wyatt Earp. I know. I know all about you. And your reason for being here. But I heard a lot about you too, Doc. You left your mark around in Deadwood, Denver and places. Fact, a man could almost follow your trail going from graveyard to graveyard. There's one here too. The biggest graveyard west of the Rockies. Marshalls and I usually get along much better when uh, we understand that right away. Get your meaning, Doc. Good. Have a drink? Thanks. Believe I will. Mac, a glass of champagne for the marshal. Make it whiskey. You're my guest, marshal. Champagne. Champagne it is, Mac. Staying here long? A while. Until you catch the rustlers that killed your brother? It's a general idea. What's a specific idea? I don't follow you quite. You haven't taken it into your head to deliver us from all evil. I haven't thought of it quite like that, but ain't a bad idea. It's what I'm getting paid for. Let's get down to cases, Marshal. I, for instance. How would you handle me if I took a notion to break the law. You already have. For example? Run that tin horn out of town. That's none of your business. 
I see we're in opposite camps, Marshal. Draw. Can't. We can take care of that easily enough. Mac. Brother Morgue's gun. Big one, that's Morgue. The other one, that good-looking fella, that's my brother Verge. It's Doc Holliday, fellas. Hiya, Doc. Howdy. Howdy. Have a drink. Don't mind if I do, Doc. Join us, Mac. Yes, sir. Thanks. Yeah, uh, it's it is. Uh, I I put it up there with uh, of all the Earp movies, uh, Law and Order and My Darling Clementine are the two that I um, like the most. Um, Peck and Paw's so, favorite western, at least that's what he claimed. Yeah, and you can and you and you can see that in. To me, you can see it in. Um, why can't I think? Ball, the Ballad of Cable Hogue, kind of the gentleness of that one, which he claimed was his favorite of his movies. I love it. It's uh, so underrated, and it's so, such a beautiful movie, and it's so funny, and it's got so much great music. Ballad of Cable Hogue, I, I don't know how many people on this planet have seen it, but it's not nearly enough. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that sets um, My Darling Clementine apart from the other movies, what it sets it apart from Frontier Marshall, because uh, My Darling Clementine is very specifically a remake of the Randolph Scott movie. Um, supposedly, uh, John Ford, I think it was, um, was it Zanuck who produced yep. My Darling Clementine? Absolutely. It was yeah. the last movie on his Fox contract, and they did not get along. Yeah, yeah. so he... He told Ford, you know, like, I, I think that you should remake this movie. And Ford watched it and said, well, I can, I can make a better movie than that. <laughs> and so My Darling Clementine was Ford's first Western since um, Stagecoach. Yeah, and he just got back from World War II, as had Henry Fonda. Like, people always think, oh, John Ford, he's the Western guy. But in the 40s, it was like, no, he's the guy who did How Green Was My Valley. He's the guy who was doing The, the Grapes of Wrath. He was, like, the most prestigious director in Hollywood before he went off and joined the Navy. And so I think people forget that there was a, a certain period in time where John Ford was not the guy who had made the fucking Searchers and Ford Apache and all these brilliant movies. So it was actually kind of an unusual, an unusual thing for him to be coming back to the Western genre like this. Yeah, and what what he does is he boils down the elements of the story uh, to a thing that he can be like kind of loose with it. It's not plot driven. Um, it's it has these loose vignettes. Uh, there's a lot of uh, poetry to it, but at the same time, it is just sort of a, it's a very simple Western. Like it's like a, it's a very pure Western, but there's a, there's definitely a poetry, a poetry there. And so that's, what's fascinating. I recommend anyone who's a fan of my darling Clementine to watch the Randolph Scott um, version of frontier Marshall, because you will start seeing a lot of the choices made of things that they repeat scenes um that that they repeat in my darling clementine and then um uh but also where it differs and 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 the kind of things that uh 
you know, Ford added to it. One thing so, that really blew, caught me off guard this time watching, and I've seen this movie at least five or six times, but at the end, when they're going off for the gunfight at the OK Corral, I was like, oh my God, this is the end of the Wild Bunch where you got the Earps and their brothers all coming out and they say, let's go. And the way they're kind of putting all the bullets into their guns and just kind of getting ready. It's just like when the Wild Bunch gets ready to go rescue Angel when they're coming out of all the whorehouses and kind of getting their getting all their uh, gear and uh, equipment ready. I mean, very clearly was an overt homage by Peckinpah to this movie that he admittedly really loved. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then you you do see kind of from there the 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 movies that come after the Wild Bunch kind of do a almost like as if they're doing an homage to the wild bunch. So yeah, the big walk, the walk over there. Oh yeah. You know? Hell yeah. So in tombstone, uh, I mean the closing credits of tombstone are the four of them just walking to triumphant music as, yeah, as the credits the, go by. All the B roll. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it's just like shot after shot after shot. They're just like prolonging the moment as long as they can, but obviously nobody did it better than Peckinpah and the wild bunch. Yeah. Uh, so my darling Clementine is interesting because uh, John Ford apparently actually knew Wyatt Earp and claims that Wyatt Earp explained everything that actually happened in the gunfight and all that. But um, My Darling Clementine is one of the least accurate. <laughs> it's almost charmingly like uh, makes a, an overt effort to avoid the truth at every available opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just just small things. And this is not a criticism of my darling Clementine. I don't, I don't want anyone to think that I'm like talking shit, like oh, it's not accurate or anything like that. In fact, when we get to some of the later movies that are attempting to be more accurate, I think that the uh, accuracy sometimes hamstrings the drama of those movies. But so we'll talk about that later. But um, uh, yeah, it just gets almost everything, every element of it wrong. I mean, very simple things like um, the Earp brothers. They have James as the youngest Earp, and they basically get the brothers, the order of the brothers wrong. So in real life, James is the oldest of the Earp brothers. They have him as the youngest. And they, they, they get, I mean, just simple things like yeah. that. And they make Ward Bond, who's this salty old bastard, into Morgan, who's usually the babyface youth. But Ward Bond, I always forget that Ward Bond used to be like jacked and shredded. I always think of him as he, he is in Rio Bravo and the searchers where he's kind of this kind of chubby old man with like a big butt. He looks like a fucking <laughs> bodybuilder in this. At one point he's taken off his shirt in the background. I was like, Jesus Christ. Like he still looks like John Sullivan from gentleman Jim. He's just so goddamn massive. Isn't there a story of him like, uh, uh on the set of the searchers, like, um, like he had a trailer like across from Vera Miles and he would just kind of like stand at the doorway of his trailer like buck naked like trying to seduce Vera Miles. <laughs> that, that I don't know, but Vera Miles was a hottie toddy at that time, so I imagine yeah. she was unimpressed by uh, by Ward yeah. Bond's advances. <laughs> but it's funny because because Ward Bond would be the perfect Virgil Earp, you know, and you actually see because Virgil Earp is a little thicker. He looks kind of like a thicker version of of Wyatt and everything, and they just get it wrong. They have him as Morgan and. And all that, so it's uh, uh, it. That's kind of a, a a funny aspect of it too. But their chemistry is so cool. Like when they're sitting on the porch, just talking about nothing. He comes out and's like, "Yep, just ate like a skillet full of egg, of ham and eggs. It was good." Like these are not scenes that drive the plot forward. And they're you know, Tim Holtz talking about how he can smell the honeysuckle and wider. It's like, no, that's me, Barber, because he's yeah. talking about the. It's just these quiet moments where they're just chilling and hanging out, or Wyatt Earp when he's just kind of dancing when in his chair, like kind of tap dancing off this this pole. 
Westerns need to slow down and chill and relax to capture that pace of, of that period. And yeah, and that and that also, you know, back to the Peck and Paw connection reminds me of, you know, the vignettes in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid that are just these poetic asides that contribute so much but don't move the plot. And this is a movie that starts very early, like as if it's going to be a revenge film because the Clantons uh, kill uh, James Earp and then just kind of uh, forgets that for a while. <laughs> until pretty much until the end, until Wyatt basically sees that Chihuahua has got his brother's necklace and she claims that Doc gave it to her. That's when the revenge story kind of comes. But it, it, there's been like an hour of just them fucking around <laughs> between those two scenes. But uh, so so some of the things that it shares with Frontier Marshall is the initial scene where Indian Charlie is drunk shooting up the town. Um, that is that is repeated from the Randolph Scott film. Uh, one of the things a lot of people complain about is the characterization of Doc Holliday. Um, uh, Doc Holliday was a you know a tubercular uh, dentist from Georgia, you know who who was you know very sickly and all this other stuff. Uh, anyway, in in Frontier Marshall, the filmmakers were worried that the Holiday Estate would sue them, so they changed the name. And in, in, in the Randolph Scott film, uh, he's played by Cesar Romero, and so they changed his name to Halliday, and they changed certain details so they turn him into a surgeon and things like that because they didn't want to get sued. That kind of still carries over into My Darling Clementine um, by having him as a surgeon from uh, Boston and, you know, things like that. Uh, the other thing is Doc, uh, the character of Doc Holliday, he, John, John Ford had already kind of done a Doc Holliday surrogate in Stagecoach. John Carradine uh, plays Hatfield, who is this... Who's incredible. Uh, it's such a great role. Yeah, who is this dapper, like, southern gentleman gambler, you know? And, uh, and so, uh, and he's a per, I mean, if you just change his name to Doc Holliday, he's a perfect, uh, representation of who Doc Holliday actually was. And so, um, and there's very, it's a very interesting stage coach is interesting because it's kind of wider adjacent because, uh, in that movie, uh, John Wayne plays a character called the Ringo kid clearly a reference to Johnny Ringo who was against the Earps uh, during their, their time in tombstone. So it, it is interesting because stagecoach almost has a vague, almost anti Wyatt Earp agenda. If you were going to read too much into it um, because the character of Hatfield is clearly based on doc holiday. So by having Victor mature, this big, you know, bulky guy who, who would play Samson, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, he's a hoss. <laughs> As the tubercular, I mean, John Carradine looks like he's got tuberculosis, yeah. you know? So he's, so, so Ford changes those things around uh, and is clearly taking, you know, from, from the, uh, from the Randolph Scott movie. Daryl Zanuck wanted Jimmy Stewart to play the part, but John Ford shot him down. And I feel like the Jimmy Stewart pre-World War II would not have been a good Doc Holliday. The Jimmy Stewart of the 1950s and all those Anthony Mann westerns could have been a potentially brilliant Doc Holliday. So it's one of those missed opportunities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you do a few bombing runs and changes <laughs> World you. War yeah, II. I mean, he was a legit yeah. World War II hero. Yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah. So that's uh, 
So th those are interesting aspects, and also they make him a surgeon because it comes up later. In, in the Randolph Scott version, there's a kid who gets shot on the streets of Tombstone. Doc Holliday has to like perform emergency surgery, and that gets repeated in My Darling Clementine, except with the character of uh, Chihuahua. The, yeah, a name the, that uh, would not yeah. be considered necessarily the world's most PC name today, but in 1946, <laughs> you just called your female lead Chihuahua. Yeah, yeah. There, there are, there are some uh, things that you know. Uh, you know, John Ford seemed to be uh, somewhat progressive in in his movies. Sergeant pre World Bradley. War II, especially. I mean, pre World War II. Yeah. If you look at, I mean, if you look at my, the, the Grapes of Wrath, it's almost like a Marxist Marxist manifesto in a lot of ways. But as he got older, <laughs> he definitely got surlier. But when it comes to race, as you mentioned, yeah, Sergeant Rutledge, he and Woody Strode were great pals in the sixties. Yeah. So, but there are some things in the movie, you know, where Wyatt Earp is like, you're giving liquor to Indians and, you know, uh, that whole sequence. And and that's a scene that gets repeated later on in um, uh, Kevin Costner's Wyatt Absolutely. Earp. Absolutely. The drunk guy shooting up the town. And that's kind of how Earp becomes a lawman because he's the only guy who will come in and face him. And that's not based on any 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 kind of yeah, actual Yeah, that's just his. another example of the movies barring from the movies because obviously Kevin Costner probably fucking loved My Darling Clementine. But and we have a lot more examples as well of like people passing batons or like certain connectivity between them where you've got John Ireland popping up in this and in Gunfighter oh, yeah. K. Corral playing two different yep. roles. And I, I, I mean, I love him in Red River. I think the Red River is probably the best role he ever played. But he was also was he he was in the was he in I Shot Jesse James or which which Jesse James movie yeah. was he in? He was in the Sam Fuller. Uh, I think yeah, it's his I, first feature film. I think that he directed. Yeah, yeah, uh, and we'll probably talk about that one when we if we do a Jesse James episode. So. Absolutely, without a doubt. But yeah, but Kevin Costner clearly a fan of My Darling Clementine because Open Range is, in many ways, a remake of it. Uh, the whole thing of the cowboys coming into town and the one guy watching the herd getting shot and and then just kind of these loose vignettes. I mean, Open Range is clearly uh, taking a lot from. It. So yeah, anyone that watches, uh, I don't know. Have you have you seen Open Range with Robert Duvall and Kevin Costner? I never have. No. Oh, okay. It's uh, it's not great. It's got a really good gunfight at the end. So okay, fair enough. It's worth seeing for that. So, but yeah, I mean, it's John Ford. It's it's one of his best movies. You know what? What else can you say about my darling? You get to hear "Shall We Gather at the River" like in every John Ford movie, and you get to see <laughs> Henry Fonda dance, which is seen a lot. I mean, like whether you're watching Young Mister Lincoln or you're watching this, you get to see Henry Fonda dance the same way. Like if you love the world of John Ford, you've already seen this movie. You know it. You love it. And if you're new to the world of John Ford. This is one of the good ones, like this and Ford Apache and Stagecoach and Wagon Master. And Sir, he's got a handful of really good. If you just want to focus on the westerns, my darling Clementine is in the conversation. Although it seems like John Ford was kind of dismissive of it, almost as like a kids' movie. I don't entirely agree. Agree. He just he was pissed that Daryl Zanuck cut a lot of the movie and kind of took it out of his hands at the end. So I understand if he had ambivalent feelings about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that makes sense, um, and it is not. It is not heavy like the searchers, so you know it. It is. It is much lighter fare. It, it it has clear delineations between good and evil, and and so maybe he thought about you know maybe he thought it wasn't as you know as complex as some of his later movies, but there's just a there's a purity to it that. 
Yeah, just that, from the song and the credits, like, oh, my darling. I mean, it's just the delight. <laughs> yeah, so it's, yeah, it, it's a good one. The, the portrayal of the gunfight at the OK Corral is so well done. Not accurate at all, but it's, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you but know, it's exciting, of, yeah. Yeah, the use of dust. And, and Walter Brennan's so fucking mean in this, like shooting people in the back with shotguns. He kills a lot of people. He kills two of Wyatt Earp's brothers. And it's just uh, incredible how like mean and savage Walter Brennan is in this movie. What, what's, I, what's that line? Like I, when you pull a gun, kill a man or something like that? Uh, when he starts yeah. beating his son with a whip for failing yeah, to shoot? Him, yeah. yeah, I mean, just, yeah, it's, a, it's as hardcore as Walter Brennan ever was. And, and apparently he didn't get along with John Ford. It, it's his only movie with john ford i believe john ford could be a mean old bastard i i totally get it i love and adore john ford but he was not a nice person <laughs> yeah. On, yeah, on many occasions yeah. but uh but yeah so anyone who hasn't seen it yeah they, they should definitely see it it's beautiful black and white it's there's you know there's what else, what else can you say about about the film she's a high riding woman with a whip She's a woman that all men desire But there's no man can tame her That's why they name her The high-riding woman with a whip She commands and men obey they're just putty in her hands, so they say When she rides and the wind is in her hair She has eyes full of life, full of fire But if someone could break her And take her whip away Someone big Someone strong, someone tall You may find that the woman with a whip Is only a woman after all Alrighty, well, since you're having a cocktail on your end, I decided I can't let a man drink alone, especially if we're talking about Western. So I just poured myself a glass of Oban that was given to me by Bill Tech when he, he was here on his last appearance of Wrong Reels. So we're now officially drinking together. <laughs> nice. Nice. Hopefully this just gets incomprehensible by the end. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like because I just had a Red Bull, I'll be able to use the caffeine to kind of cut through the uh, the foggy <laughs> haze of the alcohol. So next on our list, would it be Gunfight at the OK Corral or 40 Guns? Or what's 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 next chronologically? Uh, chronologically would be, I believe it would be 40 Guns. Uh, there's a film that I just kind of want to give a nod to real Absolutely. quick. Absolutely, fire away. Two into, but it's called Tombstone, a town too tough to die. Richard Dix plays uh, Wyatt Earp, and Edgar Buchanan, the yeah from Petticoat Junction, the drunken, uh, the drunken. Um, uh, what what does he play? He he officiates the wedding in Ride the High Country. Oh, I love that scene. That's a brilliant scene. It's a very <laughs> yeah. different wedding than you've seen in any other movie before. And a lot of people exactly. like Jerry Harvey from Z Channel use that scene for his own vows and his actual wedding. And that and, and that turned out perfect. So <laughs> Yeah, it turned out with a, a double murder suicide. <laughs> um, but uh so he he's in it playing Curly Bill Brocious. Not quite as imposing as Powers Booth, but uh it's an interesting movie. 
it 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 you know it's just a, it plays just as fast and loose with the facts, but it uh, it's you know it's not it doesn't it's not too far off. Um, what it does is start the trope, which will come up later, of the kind of the client inside having this sort of young kid who either confides in Doc Holliday or confides in Wyatt Earp and uh, is drawn into the conflict, even though he's sort of uh, just something to kind of make give a little bit of weight, I guess, to uh, the gunfight at the OK Corral. So it doesn't just feel like good guy, like, you know, straight up good guys, bad guys. Um, I think that's a holdover because in the gunfight at the OK Corral, Billy Clanton was only about 19 years old and he was one of the people that were killed. So there's always been a sort of uh, sympathy for this, uh, this young kid getting, getting killed in the okay corral. So but of course back it, then they aged in dog years, 19, you were basically like 40. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> that, that is true. But, uh, but uh, the Clanton sympathizers definitely made it sound much worse. You know, gotcha. Billy Clanton, was a mean guy. Was that he Thomas was not... Hayden Church's character in Tombstone? Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. He was not. A, he was not some angelic uh, teenager, but that's the thing that to, to try to give it a little resonance, I guess. So, um, but this is the first time that I've seen it crop up in a Wyatt Earp movie. Uh, it's it's worth checking out. It's not amazing, but it's a it's a decent one. But yeah, Forty Guns. I didn't rewatch that one for this episode, but I do love that movie. I mean, if you're a Sam Fuller fan, there are a lot of good ones to choose from, but this is one of the really special that one of the special movies that really screams Sam Fuller. As is often the case, he wrote the screenplay, he directed, and it's just so wild and so over the top and so irreverent and humorous and fun and inventive. Just from the way Barbara Stanwyck, dressed all in black, rides in the frame at the beginning with these 40 studs behind her, and she's just bouncing up and down on the horse. I mean, she was 49 when she played this, and she's such a fucking badass. It was a scene where like, her stunt woman didn't want to do the scene, so she volunteered to do it instead where a horse is dragging her through a storm. Once again, 49 years old, doing her own stunts. There's a lot of debate these days about what's the best way to handle badass females in like sci-fi movies, fantasy movies, superhero movies, etc., 40 Guns is an example where you have not one but two because you have uh, Barbara Stanwyck as well as the girl who is like a blacksmith slash like gunsmith in town who's like the best shot in the territory but still hot as balls. And there's this great line where this guy says uh, about her, um, she even looks good in overalls, built like a 40-40. I'd like to stick around to clean her rifle. Like it's the same, <laughs> the same Fuller dialogue is so ridiculous throughout, but it's, if you like Sam Fuller, like, you know, pick up on South street or a, a naked kiss or shot cord or 40 guns is in the mix as one of his finest. It's, it is a, it's a movie movie. Yes. So it's very a, cinematic. Where, where out of nowhere a guy might just start singing and he will just... Woman with a whip, baby. Yeah, woman with a whip yeah. is beautiful. With echo and, uh, you know, it's, you know, it just has... It, it's it's so... Yeah, there's no... Um, there's no attempt at um, uh, realism. It's just, it's just wild and it's a lot of fun and it's such a strange concept because... Uh, it, yeah, it is a fictionalization of the Earp story. These brothers are these town tamers and, the, the, you know, they come into the town and all that. And, but instead of old man Clanton, you have Barbara Stanwyck. So <laughs> so imagine a Wyatt Earp movie 
So take old man Clanton, Walter Brennan from My Darling Clementine, and replace him with Barbara Stanwyck, yep. and yeah, have him falling in love with uh, the Wyatt Earp surrogates. And when you mention <laughs> so. that, it's like it's like like a movie movie in terms of it's wildly implausible and has things that can only happen in movies that are very self-conscious about being a movie. Like there's this great scene where the main character Griff and Griff, the name pops up in a million Sam Fuller movies because that was one of his buddies in world war two. But Perry Sullivan is walking toward a guy and it's like this crazy thing where between the music and his walk, he just kind of puts the whammy on this guy and psychs him out. And it's this long protracted scene where this guy basically just watches Griff slowly approach him and people are like, Oh, only one man walks like that. And when he finally gets up to him, just whacks him on the head. But of course, if you're going for gritty realism, like, well, why didn't he just shoot him a hundred times over as he approached him? But in the context of the movie and its ability to sustain and build tension, it totally makes sense emotionally in the context of the movie. It's one of those things that Sam Fuller does so well. Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to be honest here. That is not too far-fetched. That is a thing that Wyatt was known to do. He was known to just walk up to some drunk armed guy and his confidence in that kind of danger was just, he exuded so much of it that he would just have these guys transfixed and he would just go hit him over the head. So he would go to an armed man, walk up to him calmly and just hit him over the head with a gun. I mean, there are many accounts of him doing that. So that's actually uh, one of those things that, yeah, is actually based on the real ERP. So uh, it's a kind of a fascinating. I love uh, it. Fascinating touch. But yeah, there's and, and there's just the, a lot of the shots, the shot where cinema's go, baby. Panel, right. It's like the, clearly like the James Bond. Oh you yeah, know. the shot of the gunsmith. Well, yeah, when yeah. they look at the guy's flirting with the gunsmith by looking down the barrel of the gun, and it's this beautiful, almost like pinup shot of this insanely hot blonde girl smiling back at him. Once again, it's it's delightfully self-consciously cinematic, and it's why Sam Fuller was so beloved by the French New Wave guys. Yeah, and and uh, just to bring up the, his uh, the innuendos in the dialogue. You know where where uh, the the Erp surrogate I can't remember the character's actual name but Griff uh, he is talking to the Barbara Barbara Stanwyck character about his gun and he basically <laughs> tells her be careful that it doesn't go off in your face yeah she's saying because <laughs> it's very suggestive she's like stroking it she's like may I feel yeah. it and he says uh huh she's like just curious and he's like it might go off in your face and she says I'll take a chance and yeah it's just wildly <laughs> for 1957 this is as, uh, as as raunchy as movies get pretty much yeah so uh so yeah it's it's a lot of fun I I love it um, very different in tone from the gunfight at the OK Corral yes yeah really kind of different different in tone from most of these yeah so but there are there are interesting little uh, asides a lot of the businesses in the town or whatever are based on uh businesses in tombstone at the time so there are a few little like um uh references to the actual to the actual um events in tombstone that it seems weird that they would even put them in there but since the movie is just so <laughs> you know so fanciful and just so funny like when griff's walking down the street having a conversation just said it has nothing to do with the scene but as he walks by a horse he just kind of affectionately slaps and massages a horse on the ass and then he just keeps going without breaking his stride and it's just little funny shit like that that's scattered throughout the movie that just makes it so much damn fun yeah yeah so so it's it's a, it's a it's a really good one uh, I, I highly recommend it. And there's a lot of those kind of, you know, wh- I know Warlock is also like a 
Wyatt Earp based on Wyatt Earp and, and stuff. So there's it's it's just another in those lines of, of movies that kind of take the Wyatt Earp story as a springboard. And I almost think that that is the best, in many ways, the best way to do it. Take take the elements you like and just kind of I make a wild movie that stands on its make, own. Yeah. So and as we get into the ones that try to get a little bit more historically accurate, we might we'll, we'll run into some trouble. <laughs> And make their final stand, O King Corral. Oh, my dearest one must I lay down my gun or take the chance of losing you forever? Duty calls, my back's against the wall. Have you no kind word to say before I ride away? Flame, let it burn until I return from the gunfight at OK Corral. If the Lord is my friend, we'll meet at the end of the gunfight at OK Corral. Gunfight at OK Corral. OK Corral. All right, well, let's talk about Gunfight at the OK Corral because John Sturgis made not one but two movies on this topic. We have this as well as his movie that came 10 years later, The Hour of the Gun. But obviously this movie, am I correct that this movie actually coined the phrase Gunfight at the OK Corral? That's why people call it that ever since? Oh, that's a good question. You know, Or did it just I, popularize that expression? I would have to. I would actually have to look that up because I read. I mean, once again, we're talking about like the difference between myth and fact, and it's hard to separate the bullshit from the tree sometimes. But I read on one like IMDb trivia page that this movie coined the phrase. Hmm. I would. I would have to. I'd have to look that up. Actually, that's interesting. I don't know. You've you you've stumped me there. Gotcha. Well, I'll be the one time I'll stump you all episode. <laughs> well, the thing that is interesting is that I mean I know it was called Street Fight at the like at the OK Corral or or, or Street Fight or or uh, Gunfight on the Streets of Tombstone and stuff. The thing that's interesting is that the gunfight didn't take place at the OK Corral. It took place in a vacant lot uh, near the near the rear of the OK Corral. So it, it it started becoming known as this. I don't know if it specifically was called gunfight at the OK Corral, but it started becoming known as the as this conflict, this fight at the OK Corral, um, because of uh, Wyatt Earp's little sketch that he had done, which he kind of misdrew the layout of the town. So, but the gunfight at the OK Corral is not actually in real life a gunfight at the OK Corral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it just sounds more dramatic than the gunfight near the OK Corral. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the gunfight generally uh, in the area of the OK Corral. So, but yeah, that is that is an interesting tidbit. I would have to I would have to actually look that up. But yeah, gunfight at the OK Corral. It's it's a pretty standard fifties western, honestly. 
It's very wholesome. It's very Hollywood, very mainstream. And I think it's my least favorite of all the movies we're discussing today. And granted, I don't necessarily have a lot of love for Wyatt Earp, but there are scenes in Wyatt Earp that I do enjoy. I really like Kirk Douglas as an actor, and I really like Burt Lancaster as an actor. I don't know if I really like either of them that much in this. Burt Lancaster is like kind of a goober, and he's usually the coolest motherfucker that ever lived in every movie that he appears in, except for in this one. I know he fought with director John Sturgis about how they're going to portray the character, but there, for me, there's there's something missing. There's something either humorous or nasty or violent. Like there's It, it lacks like a, a, some sort of quality that will make it stand apart, whereas all the other ones seem to have something unique about them. Yeah, and there's... I mean, one of the things that's kind of strange about the movie is it it feels cheap. The stuff that's shot and in, in the, the exteriors look cool. They're well shot. There's low angles and stuff. The interiors are weird, and I swear that they keep reusing the same sets and redressing them. There's like they have the same saloon layout in three different scenes, and it's this, and it's like the the bar over on the left side. And, uh, you know, it, 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 if you rewatch the movie again with that in mind, you, you'll see that every saloon they go into has the same layout, but it's just redressed for the different towns that they're in. And so it's like, that's, that's weird. They didn't have another bar set. It's just, also, if you compare this to like Searchers or Rio Bravo, which are around the same time, it just makes this one seem kind of hokey and old fashioned in a lot of ways. Cause like the Western obviously is always changing and evolving stylistically. And there are some movies that really stretch the limits of what the Western can do. This doesn't seem to be stretching it at all. No, no, not really. I'd say the only thing is that Kirk, uh, I mean, uh, Kirk Douglas's uh, love interest <laughs> looks <laughs> actually is probably around his same age. Yeah. <laughs> so she looks 80, only... but she's probably like 35 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably one of the only really unique things about the film. I did like that aspect of it. Apparently they had um, but... fun though. I mean, like Kirk Douglas and John Lang, I mean, Burt Lancaster became really good friends and they made a lot more movies together as a result. And apparently they were laughing so hard while making the, like the scene where they face off a room full of guys where Kirk Douglas throws him a gun. Apparently they were cracking up so much just like at the machismo and the bravado of the scene, they actually had to send them home for the day and then try again another day. But so apparently they did have a blast making it and you can feel that love and that chemistry, but I like my Wyatt Earp to be a little bit meaner and nastier and dirtier. And he, this is the white knight version of Wyatt Earp that Hollywood would have us believe in, whereas all the other movies seem to embrace some of his darker qualities. Meaner or, yeah, or just some, something to something to make him not this this kind of standard hero. So, you know, my darling Clementine, Earp isn't really a mean guy in that, but, but you know, he has these, these moments of uh, almost sensitivity, you know, like a rough frontiersman, you know, kind of being confronted with civilization. And there's nothing really, there's not a whole lot about this movie that resonates, but it does continue the, it does continue this idea of like this kid, this, you know, Billy Clanton and this one played by Dennis Hopper. Uh, you know, he's kind of like, pushed into to the conflict. So that's maybe the only... Yeah, the cast is awesome. You got Dennis Hopper and you got like DeForest Kelly and you have all these great people popping. You're like, whoa, that's fucking Dr. McCoy hanging out with like, you know, Wyatt yeah, Earp. Lee Van, 
Lee Van Cleef. Yeah. Uh, so the yeah, cast so, is the cast is terrific. It, I mean, it's 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 watchable, but it's, it's just very not watchable. Great. It's the kind uh, of movie that you would watch when you're like eight or nine years old. That your your father says, "Hey, come in here, sit by me, and watch some of this movie with me." And you're coming like, "Oh, this is old and boring." Like that's how I first got exposed to it. I saw some of it with my dearly departed stepdad, who's a Western fanatic, and he loved and adored this movie. So I'm not bashing in any way, shape, or form. It's just that there are westerns that are kind of standard Hollywood entertainment vehicles. And there are Westerns that change the Western as we know it. And I think 40 guns of the two movies is just wildly more stylistic and experimental and holds up really well. Yeah. And I, it was a, it was a huge hit, right? Like uh, it this, budgeted 2 million and it, it grossed 11, seven, 11.75. So yeah. One thing that's interesting is that, uh, um, some of the dialogue gets repeated in tombstone. Uh, where where a big nose Kate is asking Doc Holliday what would happen if she if he dies and he says well you'll you know you will uh, lose your meal ticket like that's repeated later in the movie Tombstone and also lyrics from the song are also repeated by Doc Holliday in Tombstone or at least in the so that's that's a little nod I guess to 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 this film uh the end i mean with john sturges the the uh, action scenes are good the end gunfight is really well done not accurate at all they're you know wagons on fire and <laughs> i mean john sturges was a major action director and he's made so many movies that i love and adore man i really enjoy joe kidd i love the great escape i love the magnificent seven i mean he's one of those guys where when i was first getting into movies i would like kind of accidentally stumble upon his name like oh my god that's this is that guy again i keep bumping into more movies by john sturgis and so i really do enjoy movies like bad day black rock and things like that he was very solid and i think his movie hour of the gun is very solid as well it basically hour of the gun the first scene is the gunfight at the ok corral with like this beautiful cinemascope opening credit sequence with all the uh, all the characters being introduced like jason robards is playing doc holiday and it's it's pretty cool and then you basically get the second half of the story beyond that. And I actually think Hour of the Gun is the stronger of the two, but it's very obscure. I'd never even heard of Hour of the Gun until you mentioned it to me. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I guess Sturgis was not, even though this was a big hit, he was not happy with the film. And uh, the film does repeat uh, a thing that um, started with Law & Order, which is that one of Earp's friends or brothers uh, is killed and that is the impetus for the OK Corral, and that's basically uh, how every every movie uh, about Earp had followed up to that point. So it is repeated in the Gunfight at the OK Corral. Well, Hour of the Gun was John Sturgis's attempt to do a more accurate retelling of um, the Earp story in Tombstone. So yeah, it opens with um, the Gunfight at the OK Corral, a much more realistic. Uh, accurate rendering of it which is just a very quick gunfight that just happens in a flash which is you know the real gunfight lasted about 35 seconds and then it just kind of focuses on the vendetta ride from there so yeah it was you know this was the late 60s and so it it doesn't quite it doesn't quite have a negative opinion of Wyatt but it has a more complex opinion of him 
Yeah, and James Garner really knocks it out of the park. I think James Garner's Wyatt Earp is a much more interesting character. I mean, Burt Lancaster is one of my all-time favorite actors. I love him in like the the swimmer, and I love him in just he's the Sweet Smell of Success is one of my only movie uh, original uh, one sheets that have on my wall. I mean, Burt Lancaster is a fucking legend, but I, I he does nothing for me in the Gunfight of the OK Corral, and it almost like hurts my feelings that one of my favorite actors <laughs> it, like is not delivering. And it's just, uh, I, I, there are plenty of other great Burt Lancaster. If you want to see a great Burt Lancaster Western, watch The Professionals. There, he's knocking it out of the park. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, uh, uh, Ozana's Raid. Oh, or, hell yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's made some other good ones. Or even Michael Winner's Lawman. That's a, that's a, uh, that's a pretty nasty movie, pretty nasty Western. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, Hour of the Gun, um, I like from my memory of it, which I haven't seen it in years. Uh, I like that uh, they take that uh, they, that aspect where they kind of uh, focus on the vendetta ride after the OK Corral. Um, it's you know it, it, it builds itself as a more accurate retelling, and it is from the ones that had come out come before then. But it's not really. Uh, particularly accurate uh it's uh, isn't and you could refresh me because you, you refresh my memory because you've seen it recently but isn't he trying to get like these guys to draw on him so he can kill them legally or something yeah <laughs> something he, yeah he he in this movie he is absolutely hell-bent upon staying within the letter of the law but there are a lot of his opponents actually are wearing badges now so it gets more complicated so he's very conflicted in that sense and Robert Ryan is a pretty cool Ike Clanton. I liked him a lot of that. But the most fun parts of the movie are just seeing uh, Jason Robards going around and trying to round up a posse. Because Jason Robards, I mean, he's, he's one of the all-time great actors. Obviously, in Battle of Cable Hogue, he's just perfect. But it's seeing the arm twisting that he's engaging in, trying to round up some interesting characters to help them. That stuff was interesting. So I did really enjoy it. Once again, it's a perfect Sunday afternoon uh, kind of western just to chill on the couch and hang out. It just lacks... That really it lacks that extra special something that would set it apart from the other westerns of the time. Yeah, and uh, there are just strange things about it, like the like Curly Bill Brocious shows up, played by a young John Boyd. Yeah, he's baby faced. Is, yeah, he's he's like he's like fucking ten in this. Yeah, and so and they shoot him on the streets of Tombstone, which is you know not accurate. That didn't, it didn't happen that way. And and the movie, one of the things that kind of puts a damper on trying to tell the Wyatt Earp story accurately is that. Um, Ike Clanton was not killed by Earp. Ike Clanton was killed many years later um, in a robbery. So um, he, so you know, it's tough because he's he's kind of the impetus. He's kind of the guy who shoots his mouth off, causes all this trouble, and gets these people, gets his brother killed in the in you know the gunfight at, uh, near the OK Corral. That's the way it always goes. You get in a bar fight, and it's because someone has been talking shit, and like all of a sudden you look up, and he's like gone on to another bar, but you're still back behind like dealing with the problem they've created. So yeah, the shit talkers will always get everybody else killed. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the problems if you're trying to do an accurate wider movie is that it's going to be unsatisfying that that you know this weasel uh, doesn't get his comeuppance. And so um, it's one of the things about Hour of the Gun where they definitely diverge from history and they have an end, you know, duel between Earp and uh, Ike Clanton and they make Ike Clanton as this kind of like figurehead of the Cowboys when in actuality his father had been the figurehead but got killed in Mexico on one of his wrestling um, runs and uh, 
and basically the Cowboys were then run by Curly Bill and, and Johnny Ringo. So um, Ike Clanton was always just sort of, uh, you know, he wasn't, he was never the figurehead and, and uh, there was never a duel between him and Earp. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and there's just other things about the movie that are just not quite there. The way Tombstone is almost like a ghost town in Hour of the Gun, which is definitely not accurate. Yeah, it was a boom town. It went from like 100 people to like 7,000 in the span of like two years. Yeah, so that's one of the things about it. That's weird. And one of the one of the things that's interesting about Hour of the Gun is that a lot of people that worked on it, I mean, maybe not a lot, but, but uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of holdovers then worked on The Wild Bunch. So like uh, Lucian Ballard. Yeah. The, the oh, the photography is gorgeous. I mean, Lucian Ballard's one of the all-time great DPs. Yeah, and the, and the costume designer and stuff. But at the same time, you also, when you look at the Hour of the Gun and then you look at like The Wild Bunch, you do see the huge difference in quality even though hour of the gun is not a poorly shot movie but the way that the wild bunch is shot and compare it you kind of see the difference between and i'm not i don't want to talk shit on john sturgis because yeah, i like he just wasn't it. a stylistic innovator he was a really solid awesome yeah. filmmaker who made really entertaining movies many of which i've seen i mean great escape i've probably seen five times i've seen probably magnificent seven five times i love john sturgis but sam peckinbaugh was a true poet he was a true stylistic innovator john sturgis was not yeah, so there's 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 interest in in kind of seeing uh, or just even the costumes, you know, uh, just the clearly, you know, I think that Peckinpah was just uh, more demanding, you know, and, and you do see the quality uh, a difference. But Hour of the Gun, I still recommend it from what I can recall, and it's definitely interesting to see a filmmaker almost trying to correct his mistakes or, or whatever he considered. Yeah, he, he, he still had more to say on the topic. Mr. Holliday. Hey! It's me, Mr. Holliday. Jesus Christ, kid. You almost got your head blown off. Listen, if you're going to call a man from the dark like that, you better plan on killing him. Sorry, Mr. Holliday. My uncles would go crazy if they saw me talking to you. Who? I can Billy Clanton, and they think Whiter brought you into town to kill them. Listen, kid, you go tell your uncles that Doc Holliday is a gambler. I don't kill people for other people. There's going to be trouble, Mr. Holliday. Not with me, there isn't. Lots of trouble. Wyatt don't like I Clanton, or us. I ain't sure why, but there's going to be bad trouble. That's why I came to see you, Mr. Holliday. I want you to teach me how to shoot. Why? So you and your uncles can kill Wyatt better? Hmm? Or me? Oh, no, Mr. Holliday. I'd never kill you. <laughs> Forget about guns. I could promise my mother before she died that he'd never let me be a gunfighter. So drinking's all right, and punching cattle's all right, but shooting ain't. I gotta learn, Mr. Holliday. Why'd you come after me, not somebody else? Because they say you're the best there is. Because I read all about you in them dime novels, Mr. Holliday. Because, because you're a legend. All right, kid. 
now, wait, hold it now. Kid, you'd be dead by now. I mean, Fanon's all right, it's very fast, but it's not very accurate. And accuracy is much more important than speed. You see, the important thing is to get your arm all the way out so you have the target right in your sights. That's important. The other important thing is to relax so you can concentrate. Okay. Take your time. That's good. That's real good. Nice shot. Let's go home. Well, let's talk about one that's described on Amazon as being a fanatically accurate uh, interpretation of this story. And this is uh, Frank Perry territory, the director of The Swimmer, a director who seems to these days only to be known for The Swimmer. But here we have Doc, 1971. also mommy dearest <laughs> yeah but people never like talk about or even like think about the movie anymore and like i i remember mommy dearest because it came out when i was a, when i was a kid and it was you know traumatized and horrified everybody who watched it but it seems like the swimmer grows with each passing year as a as this great cult classic but no one ever talks about any of his other movies and i'd never seen doc until preparing for this episode so what is going on in this particular movie well the person that described Doc as fanatically accurate is incorrect. <laughs> Doc is, uh, uh, and in many ways, similar to uh, Dirty Little Billy in the sense that, uh, and, and a few other movies from the seventies. Yeah, it's one of those like take these, yeah. yeah, movies where people live in a state of total abject squalor. It's just uh, these filthy early seventies Hollywood westerns. Not just that, but also uh, taking these characters and uh, that these icons and really trying to deflate them. Uh, in 1960, there uh, was a book that came out. I think it was called The Earp Brothers of Tombstone. It was written by a guy named Frank Waters, and he supposedly had interviewed in the 30s um, uh, Virgil Earp's wife, and she had all these anti Wyatt Earp things to say about how he was. Uh, complicit in stagecoach robberies and he was doing this shady thing and that shady thing and uh, it turns out they found his original manuscript and none of that was actually in there so this guy had actually faked all this stuff and this book really kind of turned the tide uh, in terms of people's opinions of Wyatt Earp because he'd been so mythologized as a uh, um, you know this great figure of law and order uh so his his book really kind of punctured that idea, and uh, this movie Doc is clearly based on that guy's writings. Um, so this movie focuses on Doc Holliday, and Harris Ewan plays Wyatt Earp, and it is the uh, most really critical portrayal of Wyatt Earp on film. Yeah, it's like he po- is positively villainous. He is an absolute shithead in this movie um having said that i um i just rewatched it last night i hadn't seen it in years uh, and i really enjoyed it um and it does it does touch upon uh how much that wider was an opportunist um the political machinations of you know uh, certain things um but it is not an <laughs> it is not an accurate portrayal. <laughs> but what it does have is Faye Dunaway in 1971, and Faye Dunaway basically from I'd say probably Bonnie and Clyde up through Network 
is as dynamic and beautiful and talented and multifaceted like a Hollywood actress as you're ever going to ho- hope to come across. She was just everything. She's as beautiful as you could possibly be and as talented as you could possibly be. She's kind of like the, like the ultimate like 70s female movie star in a lot of ways. And here she is just covered in mud and filth and dirt, just playing a down and dirty hooker in an unashamed, almost kind of proud way. And I really responded to Faye Dunaway in this. I've always been a huge fan of hers. Oh yeah, her her relationship with Doc, who's played by uh, Stacy Keach, is great, and it's so much fun. And he's just always calling her bitch, and and they just have such a a fun, great, like playful relationship with each other. They're she's talking about beans and how they make you fart, and and he's like and asking her to turn her like, ass away from the fire so she doesn't blow them up. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and so. Uh, that stuff that stuff is so much fun and so great it is not accurate it's it's one of those things it's one of those like revisionist uh western like ideas of you know doc holiday comes into this saloon ike clanton is there with this lady they they uh you know they basically play a card game and he bets her against doc holiday's horse and it's just one of those things that never actually would have ever it's happened. That's some great in the West. dialogue. He's like, he's like, he says, "You can reach for it if you want to, cowboy, but if you do, you're going to end up with two assholes, and one of them will be right between your eyes." I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is when like Western started to get kind of filthy and dirty in a lot of ways, and it, it makes like the gunfight of the OK Corral almost seem like like squeaky clean in comparison. Or uh, as you mentioned, he's always calling Faye Dunaway's character bitch in this. When he intimidates the tavern keeper into building a fire in order to heat up some water, he's like, I got to wash this bitch. I mean, it is just a, yeah. a gruesome, filthy movie in a lot of ways, but it's delightfully entertaining. If you, This is a great movie to drink a lot of beer while you're watching. Yeah, and and, and so, yeah, Big Nose Kate was never owned by Ike Clanton. Doc Holliday did not win her in a card game. <laughs> and at that time, a woman would be so much more valuable than a horse uh, <laughs> if if you were actually going to put a monetary value on a person. Uh, they, there's no way. I mean, th- that's just one of those it's, – it's, it's one of those revisionist ideas like, oh, the West was just so – uh, gritty and rough and uh, and all that and it's it's so fanciful but but it's it's fun it's a great scene so yeah so what you have is I don't object so much so you have Harris Eulin as Wyatt Earp and he's and he's basically he's this dickhead uh, who's you know trying to scheme and he and this and that and he has this conflict with the Clantons and all that and um I don't object so much to the portrayal of Wyatt Earp in the film. They do make him much skeezier than he actually was and much more murderous than he actually was. I would say the biggest objection would be the portrayal of the Clantons, who are just kind of these good old boys. You know what I mean? Like, they're not great people, but they're just kind of good old boys, right? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, if anything, they, they almost seem kind of sympathetic in comparison to Wyatt Earp. And when, at one point when Wyatt Earp gets in a fight with one of them and they're basically kicking him in the nuts with cowboy boots and all this stuff, like you kind of don't even know which side to be on as like, in terms of, uh, as the audience member. Yeah. And that's one of the things that it's like, uh, yeah, he fights Ike Clanton and they kind of try to give Wyatt Earp this motivation of wanting to kill Ike Clanton cause he beats him in a fight fist fight. There's no way in reality that Ike Klein would ever beat a Wyatt Earp in a fist fight. It just doesn't. 
it just doesn't line up. But also the Clantons don't seem to have like, it just seems like it's a couple brothers hanging out. They don't have this big network of rustlers or any of that kind of stuff. And so the portrayal of the Clantons is really uh, pretty off from the historical record, but it, it definitely makes for an interesting film. I would say the the biggest flaw for me, not in terms of accuracy, but just in terms of drama, is you never really understand why Doc is so stuck on Wyatt Earp. They make him such a dickhead in the movie that you're kind of like wondering, why does he care so much about this guy? You never get the feeling as to what they're you know you, you never get you never get why they're friends i guess like maybe in the beginning when you see how doc is basically living each day as if it were his last and he recognizes that his health is failing and the fact that Wyatt Earp is recruiting him into town to basically escalate this uh this ongoing dispute with the clantons it's almost like He's like been, he's brought in to be like the muscle, and, and Doc re- knows that his abilities in that department are fading fast. So almost he, he appreciates the fact that Wyatt Earp still places him on that pedestal in a way. But I, I guess for me, the ma- the main allure and the charm of this movie is the relationship between Katie Elder and Doc Holliday. And I, I like I love the scene when the girl comes by to demand that Katie Elder start coming to church in order to uh, get married to Doc. And like she's like, well, I'll only go to church when I want to get some preaching, but when I'm on my knees, it's not for praying. And I was. Like all yeah. right, this is like you know the kind of foul mouth western that I that I like to watch. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, it's uh, it it is definitely interesting. It, it's probably a movie that um, just as as um, uh, a stickler, I it's probably a movie I would prefer change the names. I guess kind of like Law and Order, so that. So that the actual, but but it's clear that they kind of had an agenda. They kind of had an anti Wyatt Earp agenda. Yeah. Uh, what about the depiction of the gunfight? Because at the end, it's basically they just walk up with four shotguns, and like the other side <laughs> barely even participates in the fight. They kind of say, "Hey, spread out!" They got shotguns, and they just get mowed down like then, then and there. Yeah, that yeah, that's that's also one of the big inaccuracies. The the Earps had a shotgun. Uh, they gave it to Holiday. Uh, and he was kind of supposed to stand back in case anything happened. Holiday would basically be covering with a shotgun. It was almost like trying to keep the Clantons from pulling their guns because they know this guy's got a shotgun here. It's not going to end well. Um, the idea that they went specifically to the OK Corral to kill the Clantons uh, is not doesn't really line up with history and they definitely didn't take four shotguns there and blow them away. And there's like six or seven Clanton uh, of the Clanton gang there. And that's not true. They have Morgan getting killed there, which isn't, which is not accurate. They have the kid character who didn't actually exist. You know, he has this friendship with, with uh, doc holiday. And, and so doc holiday uh, ends up killing him. Yeah, he's uh, kind of taught him how to shoot earlier in the movie, and they've got a little bit of a, of a, of a rapport, so it gives the the, yeah. the scene a little extra emotional heft. Yeah, but uh, none of that is none of that really lines up. So you award this movie a few Pinocchios for claiming to be fanatically accurate, or at least Amazon claiming uh, to be fanatically accurate. It's it's like uh, it's it's one of the I would put it below. I mean, what which it is less right, accurate, this or my darling Clementine? <laughs> I would say my darling Clementine is less accurate um, because this one does get into the different the political scheming and stuff and the skate stagecoach robbery and and those things 
Um, but this one is very fanciful. And they even have this uh, character of uh, John Clum, who was became the first mayor of Tombstone, but he ran the Tombstone Epitaph. He was the newspaper editor. And they have him in this movie as kind of this anti-Wyatt Earp guy who's like, Wyatt Earp, what are you doing, you know? I don't know if you remember him. He He kind of looks like a skinny... Tarantino with glasses. Oh, I can't remember now. I, 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 oh, I, I binged all these uh, about a week ago when I was preparing for this and my Lucina Visconti episode. So there, uh, yeah. some some of the details slipped through my fingers. Well, they basically have him as kind of this anti-Wyatt Earp guy who's like, Wyatt Earp's a dickhead. Well, in actuality, there were two papers in Tombstone, uh, uh, newspapers, and the Tombstone, the Earps were Republicans and the Clantons were Democrats. And the uh, Tombstone epitaph, which was run by John Clum, was a pro-Earp paper. The Tombstone nugget was an anti Erp paper. So the Cowboys would, uh, you know, submit these, you know, uh, editorials and stuff in the Tombstone Nugget, which is very anti-Erp because it was a Democratic paper. Gotcha. So, so even stuff like that, where it's like the newspaper editor is against Erp, which is not true. Like, there's just there's so many things about it that that are not uh, don't don't line up with history. But it's pretty typical of the revisionist westerns to be like, this is the true story. And uh, it's basically just just as fanciful as anything else. They just scrubbed a bunch of dirt on it. Yeah, that's what I love about Westerns. They reflect the time in which they were made. And by the early 70s, whether it's McCabe and Mrs. Miller or Dirty Billy or this, Westerns were just ready to get filthy and make everything look gross. And this is this is one of those movies. <laughs> yes. And and also, yeah. Uh, also, yeah. Any any kind of authority very anti-authoritarian uh, yeah, counterculture, all that. all that stuff. It, 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 it's such a, it was such a fad there in the early seventies. It is interesting uh, because it is also a, a wider film that was shot in Spain on the uh, sets of you know a, a lot of the uh, spaghetti westerns, oh, a cool. lot of the Leone films. And so yeah, if you actually watch it, you can kind of pick out the bank from Four of Healers more that gets robbed and. And all that. So that's interesting. It's not the first Wyatt Earp movie shot in Spain. There was a Spaghetti Western that was actually a Wyatt Earp film. I've never seen it, but it's, you could imagine it's not, from what I've heard, it's not particularly accurate. Fair enough. But it is interesting for that. There, it's, oh, it's, it's funny because in the 70s, early 70s, um, a lot of American Westerns started uh, going to Spain to shoot uh, because of the uh, spaghetti western, so yeah, wasn't the good, uh, the bad, and the ugly shot in Spain? Everybody calls it a spaghetti western, but technically, it's kind of a, I don't, I, don't, I guess it would be um, a paella western. Well, I would say <laughs> I don't want to misspeak with any of the spaghetti western fanatics, but I would say most spaghetti westerns were shot in Spain. They were just Italian productions, but gotcha. I guess uh, so the landscapes, because yeah, it was in the southern part of Spain, it almost starts to look parts of it almost start to look like Morocco. It's like you, you get a lot of that desert country. Yeah, yeah, and those sets are still standing, and um, they they still they still shoot uh, westerns out there. One of one of the guys uh, that is that plays one of the Clantons is a German actor named Dan Van Heusen, who I, I worked with on a film, and uh, he said the that when they shot the end scene of Doc, um, one of the <laughs> ways that they did effects is they. And I don't know if he, cause they cut it so fast. So I don't know if he even winds up in the finished film, but he said they took a bunch of like, uh, bloody hamburger meat and just <laughs> launched it at his face <laughs> so to make it look like they shot him in the face. But I don't know if that really shows up in the finished film. Gotcha. Wide herb, huh? Heard of you. Listen now, Mr. Kansas Law Dog. Law don't go around here. 
savvy? I'm retired. Good. <laughs> that's real good. Yeah. Yeah, that's real good, law dog, because law just don't go around here. Yeah, I heard you the first time. Winner to the king, $500. <laughs> Shut up, I. <laughs> you must be Doc Holliday. <coughs> that's the rumor. You retired, too? Not me. I'm in my prime. Yeah, you look it. You must be Ringo. Look, darling. Johnny Ringo. The deadliest pistol there since Wild Bill, they say. What do you think, darling? Should I hate him? You don't even know him. No, that's true, but... I don't know. There's just something about him. Something around the eyes. I don't know. Reminds me of... Me. No. I'm sure of it. I hate him. He's drunk. And vino veritas. Ajik Wurajis. Creda Judaea Sotella non ego. Eventus Stultorum. Magister. Come on, boys. We don't want any trouble in here, not in any language. That's Latin, darling. Evidently, Mr. Ringo's an educated man. Now I really hate him. Watch it, Johnny. I hear he's real fast. <laughs> All right, well, now we're in the final chapter of our story, and it's a strange situation, but Hollywood has a tendency to do this. Whether you're talking about volcano movies or giant asteroid movies or Christopher Columbus movies, sometimes they like to make two of the same movie at the same time. And we've got Tombstone from 1993 and Wyatt Earp from 1994, and they were even shooting so close together in terms of location. Sometimes they would have trouble finding certain resources and materials because they were being used by the other film. One of these films was a modest, uh, I would say modest to fair success. The other was a giant flop. One is still watched quite a bit today. It has a lot of really passionate defenders. The other, less so. But the, here's an example of how ignorant and stupid I was at age 17 when these movies came out. Tombstone came out, had a blast, loved it. And then I went and saw Wide Over with my stepdad like six months later. And I was so completely, utterly naive about the story of Wyatt Earp, I didn't even know that Wyatt Earp was the character in Tombstone until about halfway through Wyatt Earp when they arrive in Tombstone and I noticed that the plot started to become kind of similar. I was like, oh, no. And it, it all kind of <laughs> dawned on me all at once. But never underestimate the just unending and uh, limitless capacity for stupidity exhibited by teenage boys. And yeah, I was that guy, but I did see both of these in the theater. But you, I know, have a few friends, uh, at least a friend who worked on Tombstone. We've got some, some inside scoop from the behind the scenes. So let's just start with Tombstone since that chronologically was made first. What is going on with this particular film? Well, Tombstone was a passion project from Kevin Jar. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, he was the son, he was a screenwriter. He's the son of Maurice Jar, 
uh, who was the who scored uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Doctor Shivago. Holy shit! Um, yeah, and uh, he wrote uh, Glory, and that made him kind of hot. And so he um, he uh, he'd written a Dracula script, but then uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula came out, and so <laughs> and so this is a thing that I guess happened to him a couple times. He, you know, competing productions for his, these passion projects. But uh, yeah, so he wrote this script uh, about uh, Tombstone, and it, it and it was a very big, sprawling ensemble. And uh, he had offered it to; it was going to be his directorial debut. He offered it to Kevin Costner, and uh, Kevin Costner uh, did not like that it was an ensemble. He thought it should focus on the character of Wyatt Earp, and so he ended up going off and doing uh wider with uh lawrence kasdan so uh that was the thing and kevin jar took it very personal he he was like they're trying to you know essentially uh you know shut down my film well because kevin Co- kevin costner and i'm a fan of his wasn't necessarily the nicest person because he was trying to almost prevent people from being cast in Tombstone, was trying to make it difficult for the film to be distributed. He started actively working against the rival production, and that's a little dirty. as He's basically playing from the from the bottom of the deck at that point. Yeah, yeah, that that is that is true. Um, so Kevin Jar wrote this uh, uh, big, sprawling script, and um, he was shooting it, and he was trying to actually shoot it classically. He was trying to shoot it like a John Ford movie, with very little B-roll, very little pickup shots, just these kind of wide shots, you know. Uh, That's tough uh, if you're a first-time filmmaker. Oh, oh yeah. And the producers were like, no, this is, <laughs> this is not working. This is not good. Uh, he was way behind schedule and, uh, and uh, all that. But he'd, he'd written a very detailed script. And if you read the script, it is big and sprawling and it has all these side plots it opens with it opens with wild bill hickok getting killed it's very it goes in all these very strange directions but it's i think um it's more coherent than the final product so what ends up happening on tombstone is he gets fired um some say the producers i've heard people that were on the set the the last straw was a fight scene that actually didn't make it into the final film where he wanted Kurt Russell to do a Queensberry rules stance, you know, the oh, wow. fighting school. Irish yeah. you know, dance. Uh, and Russell was like, no, this is going to look stupid. And that was like the day that he got fired. It was over. It was in the scenes at uh, Henry Hooker's ranch with Charlton Heston. So I, I, well, I think 1993, Kurt Russell was a massive movie star. I mean, obviously he's still an icon, but 1993, he was probably as big as he ever was. I mean, maybe in the 80s he was a little bit bigger, but Kurt Russell, he had a lot of power in Hollywood at this time. And it sounds like Kevin Jar, apart from his uh, screenplay of Glory, had very little or comparatively little. Pretty much. But I've read other reports that it wasn't Kurt Russell that actually got him thrown off. It was the producers. So I don't really know. Sam Elliott said – it was clear from the first day that he didn't know how to direct, that he was trying to shoot it and he wasn't getting the shots that he needed and, and, uh, and all this. So I, I don't really know what happened, but after, after uh, he was fired, they, they basically cut the script down to where it tried to focus more on Wyatt Earp and doc, because there was no way that they were going to 
be on time, on budget, on schedule with this big sprawling script now, you know, because the whole production kind of (laughs) blew up. So, um, a lot of the actors weren't happy. Michael Bean was not happy about it. Sam Elliott said that, uh, Kevin Jarre's script was one of the best he'd ever read. And the script that they actually ended up using for the final film, had they given that to him, he would have passed on the project. So, (laughs) so, um, well, if you're trying to rewrite a movie while you're in production, it's the worst possible way to write a movie. I mean, you want to get every, you want your screenplay locked pretty much yeah. before you start shooting, shooting any sort of film. I mean, I mean, obviously there's plenty of improvisation and rewriting on certain types of movies, but not on this kind of movie. And it just sounds like yeah, if you're trying to reinvent and consolidate and streamline your movie as you go, why just dealing with the challenges of, I mean, shooting a movie is brutal and is exhausting and it's challenging and you're, enc- you're encountering problems on a daily basis that threaten to derail the entire production. If creatively you're trying to reinvent your story on the fly, holy shit, you are asking a lot of a crew. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, Kurt Russell claimed, uh, well, George, George P. Cosmatos, uh, was, was hired. He, you know, the director of, uh, Rambo first blood part two and Cobra um, whose little he, boy now is making movies like Mandy and doing, who's like an intern or like a, an assistant cameraman or something on this as well. Yeah. So he, so, so he gets hired to direct the film after he died. Kurt Russell did an interview, uh, with true West magazine where he claims that he ghost directed the film and he specifically hired Cosmatos because he said that Stallone told him that he basically just does what you tell him. Yeah, he made Cobra. He directed a lot of stuff. But he was, you know, a, a commercial filmmaker who enjoyed making movies, but he was not some great artist like Sergio Leone or something like that. Yeah, and so basically, Kurt Russell claims that he uh, ghost directed the film, and uh, but uh, but a lot of the things that made what Kevin Jarrett was doing was unique. One of the things that I can definitely say in the film's favor is uh, for. Uh, history buff like me um the look of the film is pretty much spot on the costumes the guns the costumes are awesome they're colorful like so many westerns go muddy and sepia whereas they're like peacocks in this i mean men especially southern men but like out in the west they liked weird color combinations and like showing off their wealth and their jewelry and this movie really embraces just the outrageous fashion sensibilities of the time yeah and and that's and that's one of the things yeah people look back at these old tin types and stuff and they're all sepia and they look brown and washed out and dirty and stuff and um, but it, it was the Victorian era and people wanted to dress fancy. And, and that is one of the things that the movie really emphasizes, which is great. Or just black which wool in 135 degree heat. Like Val Kilmer <laughs> was said, he, he would have to wear black wool when it was like the outside. It was basically the temperature of the sun and the, like the entire environment was infested in scorpions and they're having to walk around these horrible black wool outfits. But that was part <laughs> of the style of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, if you look at paintings from that day, Charlie Russell, Frederick Remington, they're they're colorful. The outfits are colorful uh, and gaudy, and 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 uh, so that is one of the aspects of the movie that is that is like uh, very unique because movies, in terms of accurate costuming, um, really since the you know 
since the thirties, Shane is actually a really good movie in terms of costuming, but otherwise they're just, they basically reflect the fashion of the time, you know, of, of the time that they were made. Yeah. So that's, that, that's one of the big things. And there's a lot of like very specific historical detail that he included, um, in his script. Um, Robert Mitchum was originally going to play Old Man Clanton. He had a scene at the beginning where he gets where he gets killed by Mexican federales, um, but he ended up falling. I think getting sick or falling off his fell, horse. Fell, he got injured falling off a horse, sadly, and he was old as hell at that point. So he probably had no yeah. business on horses. Period. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they so they have him as the narrator and stuff. So anyway, a lot of his dialogue then gets. Uh, moved over to curly bill and they invented this whole scene where the cowboys go and shoot up a mexican wedding which didn't happen uh, <laughs> but it is one of the, it is uh, as a as a whole it is an attempt to do the story uh, more accurately than any film had done it up to that point uh, i think where and i've read the kevin jar script and it has its issues but it is generally more ac- more accurate to what actually happened I think one of the flaws of Tombstone uh, dramatically is that it becomes very fanciful with certain things, but then tries to stick to history with other things. And that kind of what ends up happening is it doesn't make a coherent, completely coherent narrative. So one of the things like there, I, I will totally agree with you. Like I love Tombstone. However, I love it for certain details and scenes and performances, but to looking at it, looking at it overall, it's like the scenes that I love are all in the first half. And then toward the end, like in the last 20, 30 minutes, like this movie's kind of dying a slow death. Like what's going like all the air is coming out of the balloon. Like what's happening? Like why, why is it, why is it falling to pieces? But when people talk about tombstone, they talk about all the great scenes in the taverns and saloons. And they talk about all the great scenes, people standing around just talking in the streets of tombstone, most of which take place in the first half structurally it's just a complete total train wreck but because some individual scenes are so strong i find myself revisiting it on a pretty routine basis it's very watchable it's a very watchable movie like if you're a 13 year old boy this is a fun western to sit down and watch yeah and but you know it's like the movie couldn't figure out if it was going to try to be historical or be fanciful. So you have the like, yeah, I, pale horsemen um, and like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Like, it, yeah, it gets very mythic at times. And it's like, well, are you trying to go, what, what, what movie are you making? Tonally it shifts. Well, so the, so yeah, you have this kind of issue. You've, you, one, you have the Ike Clanton issue, which is, you know, um, you want to see him get killed. And throughout the movie, it's clear that he is involved in the murder of Earp's brothers but the movie, he's getting chased, and he just throws his red sash off, and then Wider just lets him go. But it's like, wait a minute, we've yeah. seen multiple scenes where he's like lynched people, where he's where he's like mercilessly shot people in an opium den, and all this other stuff. And it's like, there's no way that the character that you're portraying would ever let him get away, just because he throws a red sash off. So it's like, it's a confusing thing because they try to they overdo him killing all these cowboys so ruthlessly if white Earp ever actually got a chance to kill ike clanton knowing that he had uh you know was involved with his brother's murder he would take that he would kill him yes <laughs> so, <laughs> so and so it's like 
fair enough for the movie trying to be accurate, but you didn't need to dramatize a scene where he's like riding away. You know, that just doesn't make sense. But the earlier scenes with Ike are so goddamn funny. I mean, Stephen Lang, I didn't, he's almost unrecognizable in this. Like when he's playing poker with uh, Doc Holliday, he's like, why, whatever do you mean? Like maybe poker is not your game. How about a spelling contest? I mean, some (laughs) of those confrontations as once again, it's those scenes of people just hanging out talking shit in saloons, whether it's with Billy Bob Thornton or with Michael Bean or whomever, those are the scenes that people always fondly remember and talk about. And I think people just completely forget that the movie really is all over the place, like the last 30, 45 minutes. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, you know, oh, we can't kill Ike Clanton because he didn't really kill him. But you have a scene where Wyatt Earp literally rides a horse into a barbershop through a window and <laughs> shoots like six people. It's like, it's like, well, how outlandish are you willing to get here? Yeah. Like, That's an I'll be back moment from Terminator. Like when Arnold just drives into the police station, it's, it's a little intense, but you're so right about the ending because you get, you get two montages of them just shooting people. And it looks like the opening to like a TV show. It doesn't even, it doesn't even like look like a montage. It looks like, it looks like the opening credits of the young writers or something. So it's a, it's a really, it's really an unsatisfying second half. Um, so that's a big problem that I have with the movie. It's 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 more so like they couldn't figure out whether they were going to be authentic or not, and uh, so that 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 raises some problems. Um, other big problem: Dana Delaney's character. She's it's terrible. I think that's I think she's so poorly written and so bad in the movie. <laughs> Well, I like seeing her like sing Red River Valley and things like that. Like, there, she has her moments, but once again, her character drops out of the movie like almost entirely. After the night where Morgan and Virgil get shot, she disappears basically until the final scene. So structurally, they didn't quite figure out what to do with that character after making her so prominent in the first half. Not only that, but she's like they try to make her this free spirited woman, but the dialogue they give her is just is so groan inducing like you know what's happiness to you room service and it's like what is this it's it's really i really find her character really really poorly done in the movie and uh almost the subplot that you kind of are like well do we need this because they don't even include some of the erp brothers who went to tombstone so you can delete characters and they try to kind of make her they give it a happy ending. They're out there. The literally the end of the movie is them dancing in the snow. And it's like every other Earp movie kind of has a weight to it. His brothers are dead. It's a weird you know I mean? point to exit the film. Cause most films try to exit or come to a close on some sort of emotional peak or natural organic peak to the story. And it ends on a whimper as opposed to a bang, which is strange considering how intense earlier parts of the movie are. And I think that's why they bring back that extended walking scene from Tombstone on the way to the gunfight of OK Corral is to kind of remind you of how cool the movie was (laughs) earlier in the film. (laughs) Yeah, that is probably true. And so you do get these kind of remnants of, clearly a longer script you have this like billy zane character and some of that dialogue is grown inducing where he's sees wyatt earp and he's he's both predator and prey and it's like what is this and so i've got i got issues with that um i have issues with the movie kind of p- 
pays lip service to showing the shadier side of Wyatt Earp. Like he says, I've got a guilty conscience and he only wants to make money and all that. And he, and he kind of, he leaves his uh, drug addicted wife for this other lady and stuff. But it's like they do that, but they also want to let Wyatt Earp off the hook at every turn. So, you know, like Doc Holliday's dying wish is like, hey, go find that actress and fall in love with her. You know what I mean? And it's like, well. Yeah, that's when the movie really starts to slow down to a crawl. And it's just, it's it's a momentum killer in a lot of ways. And I was watching again a couple of days ago. And I, I, I mean, I've been watching this movie now for 25 years at this point. And it's always, I always kind of forget just how slow the end gets. Although the only thing in, I can defend is that if you watch Wyatt Earp, the other production, it slows down even more in the last, like the last hour. You're like, I'm going to fucking kill myself. Like what's going on here? So it doesn't have the pacing problems of that one. But I think it all boils down to people's love and affection for Val Kilmer's portrayal of Doc Holliday. Because when I saw this in the theater, I'd probably seen Silverado on TV. I'd seen Young Guns a few times. But my knowledge of Westerns was non-existent. But I'd never seen a character before where a sickly, weak, pale, sweaty, southern aristocrat would just like murder people with knives over a card game while using all this charming, humorous dialogue while riding off with this insanely hot chick. It was just unlike anything I'd seen. At the time, I thought of Westerns as basically being kind of old-fashioned, stuff my dad and my stepdad liked. I'd never seen like a, an evil, badass character in a Western before that I responded to emotionally so much. And I still find myself really drawn to that character. Just like at one point when Johnny Ringo's shit-faced trying to pick a fight with the Earp brothers. And you see Doc kind of observing the scene from a distance with one arm behind his back. And he's dressed as stylishly and elegantly as a human being possibly can. And the way he's just kind of like approaching almost like a dancer, there's... um. There's an elegance to the performance that's so charming and so much fun that I think I, I have a hard time disassociating myself from the excitement I felt at age 17 seeing this for the first time when I'd never quite seen a character like that in a, in a Western before. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he's great. He's a lot of fun. That scene with him and Johnny Ringo is a, is based in reality. A lot of his dialogue, uh, You're a Daisy If You Do, is based uh, on on reality. So... Uh, yeah, he's definitely the standout, and uh, I honestly, I'm a, I, I'm, I am a big Kurt Russell fan. I'm not a big fan of him in this film. I think there's something. I mean, I think, I think Kilmer is great. I think there's something about the way he portrays Wider that he's so emphatic in the way he speaks that seems off. Wider seemed like he would be a more laconic guy. He seems to. Well, Henry Fonda is as, locon- as laconic as it gets in the first one. It's like, I think we'll go into town and get a shave and a beer. It's like he's very laid back and very chill and very cool. But uh, but yeah, Kilmer, great. The villain's great. Ike, yes. Uh, yeah, Ike Clanton, Stephen Lang as Ike Clanton is the best Ike Clanton. Um, Powers Booth as Curly Bill is great. A lot of fun. He's Powers seems Booth like, is just a national treasure. It's such a shame that he's gone. He and Bill Paxton. I, I love all these. I mean, Sam Elliott obviously is still with us, but the fact that Powers Booth and Bill Paxton are no longer with us just makes me sad. Yeah, and and he's almost got it. He's almost channeling like Lee Marvin and Liberty Valance. He's yeah, got this, hell yeah, this, uh, yeah. So so yeah, he's great and and uh, and all that. And so yeah, Doc Holliday is is the most fun and um 
you know, and there and, and it's authentic to a, to a degree in the way that they portray him. I just I wish I could find some bars that look and feel like the bars and saloons in this movie. I like dark bars with no TVs with great music. And just oh, yeah. with having Val Kilmer playing Frederick fucking Chopin on the piano while his hot fucking girlfriend's leaning up against him and, you know, talking shit with Thomas Hayden Church. I mean, that's where I want to get wasted and just like spend like a couple hours, like, you know, reading cool books and, you know, maybe talking up some hookers or whatever the case might be like, that's the environment <laughs> where I want, where I want to chill and basically drink myself to death. And in New York, every single bar almost is an Irish bar with a bunch of football games playing on the TV. And I was like, they're fuck They... I love and adore New York. It's the coolest city in the world. However, the bar scene here is sorely lacking in terms of originality. And I really wish I could find like some Western saloons to spend some time in. Well, if you're ever, if you're ever in Southern California, I'll take you, I'll take you to some, there's a, there's a speakeasy around here that's hidden that you're, it's a part of a, like a gastro pub. And it's like a hidden thing through a door, and it's this. It looks just like something. Southern from California is really into speakeasies. L.A. and San Diego have a ton of them, and they love it. Yeah, and like I lived in L.A. for seven years, and I, you were always finding these awesome bars that were pitch black inside with like or great like red lighting with the coolest fucking jukeboxes in the world, and now I just like pass out drunk off fucking Jameson, just hanging, like just so relaxed and so at peace and at home. I, I absolutely loved it and adored the bar scene, both in LA and in San Diego. And yeah, in the East Coast, West Coast rivalry, I will concede California has kind of got the advantage on New York. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, um, no, Val Kilmer's a lot of fun. Doc Holliday historically has a reputation because Wyatt Earp said he was the deadliest man he'd ever seen with a gun. Um, but in terms of actual documentation, the only time that he would have ever seen uh, Doc Holliday shoot anyone was at the uh, OK Corral gunfight. And he basically shot a guy with a shotgun. <laughs> so, Which doesn't require a lot like of fighter. skill and expertise. Yeah, because I mean, I've gone hunting many times with a shotgun and I can't shoot for shit. But eventually you will hit something with a shotgun. It's got a nice spread, as they say. But every other gunfight that Doc Holliday was ever in, uh, he didn't kill anyone else. And he was so drunk that, that he would shoot people that he wasn't intending to, or he shot he shot a bar owner in the hand and then got beat up. He was his reputation as a big badass gunfighter is uh, overstated. Def- definitely, uh, yeah, definitely inflated. What do you think about how his duel with Johnny Ringo, which did did not happen historically, but how they almost try to convert it retroactively into how Johnny Ringo was found? Because I know Johnny Ringo was found dead with a hole in his head by that tree. And after Doc kills him in this, he almost kind of positions him and sets him up in the way that Johnny Ringo was found in real life. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, uh, Johnny Ringo is another guy who, you know, he had a cool name, but there's no indication he actually ever killed anybody. So he's also got another inflated reputation as a gunfighter. But yeah, I mean, the official story is that he uh, killed himself. Um there are later Wyatt Earp took credit for it, but that's unlikely. It seems like Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday were both out of the state at the time. Um, I believe that they were uh, they had to go to court in in another state. I can't remember exactly why, and so it seems like they they were clearly not there when he killed himself. Um, and supposedly, uh, supposedly another gun. Some people said Texas Jack had done it. Um, I could be misspeaking. Maybe I got his name wrong, but yeah, they do kind of 
try to still make it uh, somewhat accurate to the way he'd been found. And there is some question about whether he actually killed himself because they found a piece of his scalp missing and his gun belt on upside down. But in all likelihood, he probably actually killed himself. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's a fun scene. It's, you know. He's like, I was just fooling around. It's like, I wasn't. Yeah, but I I like how he refers back to, like, how we started a game that we didn't get to finish. So that's, for me, that's the best scene in the second half of the movie. Because after Virgil and Morgan get shot, and after Virgil, like, basically leaves town, that's where the movie kind of becomes a mess. And I love seeing Michael Rooker pop up and people like that. But... Like I said, like I've said a couple times now at this point, and this is the booze talking, but my, all my favorite scenes of the movie are in the first half. So I think that first half is just a wildly enjoy. As you said, it's a very watchable movie. And I think sometimes people perhaps look at it uncritically because they are so in love with certain details. And that's fine. There are a million movies out there that are inconsistent and are flawed that I love deeply because of certain details. And this movie definitely has some of those ingredients that I really respond to. There, there, yeah, and there are just some weird touches, like the what would probably be a pretty cool scene, which is the gunfight with Curly Bill at, at Iron Springs. No, has, no, th- yeah, no, no. You know, it's like James Earl Jones waking up as Darth Vader in Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> no, it's a very, yeah, very strange choice. So no, I, I, I don't like that scene at all. <laughs> <laughs> they're very just uh, there's there's some weird stuff in there. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's a movie that just doesn't doesn't fully work for me. But it is at the same time a movie that I can I can watch. Um, you know, it, it it's it's entirely watchable. Compare that to Wyatt Earp. Is there going to be a fight, Wyatt? I think there must be. Gotta tell you something, Wyatt. I told your brothers when they went off to fight, and I suppose the time's come for you. You know, I'm a man that believes in the law. After your family, it's about the only thing you got to believe in. But there are plenty of men who don't care about the law. Men who will take part in all kinds of viciousness, don't care who gets hurt. When you find yourself in a fight with such viciousness, Hit first if you can. And when you do hit, hit to kill. But I had not seen Wyatt Earp since 1994. I saw it summer 1994 in the theater with my stepdad. And like I said, I had that embarrassing moment where I realized that it had common ground with the, the movie Tombstone. And then I rewatched it maybe like a week ago. So it was such a strange thing after almost 20, 25 years going back and revisiting this. And it is easily an hour longer than it should be. And maybe the most ridiculous wig in movie history is employed by uh, Kevin Costner in the, his younger days. But I have to admit, there were some scenes around the middle where I was getting into it, but it is a fucking giant mess. I mean, Tombstone is dramatically superior in pretty much every way, but I didn't mind revisiting Wyatt Earp. I thought I was going to hate it, but I actually kind of had fun with it. 
I would say there are things about Wide Earp that I think are far superior to things that things in Tombstone. But it is the but there's also way bigger problems. Uh, the first half of the movie is just not. I know that they're trying to set up Wyatt Earp like he becomes this hardened kind of guy as you watch the film, and he's sort of this uh, wide-eyed kid. But boy, it's rough trying to watch Kevin Costner as a dumb teenager when he's, he's like when he's like forty at the time. Yeah, yeah, he just seems like he's not all there, and they portray him so like bright-eyed and stupid. Well, but at this time in his career, though, Kevin Costner could do whatever he wanted. I mean, after Dances with Wolves won all the Oscars you could possibly win, he was, his star power and his clout in Hollywood was at an all-time high. And this basically started to bring this and Waterworld and The Postman basically ended that. But people forget just what a huge, powerful, massive movie star he was at the time. So this is, in a lot of ways, is the movie he wanted to make. And warts and all, and it, yeah, it's got its fair share of flaws, many of which are in that first half. Like in that first hour, it's kind of terrible, and that last hour is kind of terrible. But the stuff I like is kind of in between. I so I guess. Although Gene Hackman's good in the beginning, I like Gene Hackman in the first bit. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and what's good is they do portray him. You know, they portray the horse theft. There's no indication that he beat the guy and stole his horse, but. They they portray that um, they 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 go darker. They're harder on Wyatt Earp than uh, Tombstone is. They're not as definitely not as hard as Doc. Um, I think that as a picture of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday in terms of authenticity, I think that it is far more authentic to their actual personas than Tombstone. The look of Wyatt Earp is all wrong. Uh, there's so many things that are wrong about it. The details are off, but in terms of like the general portrayal of the characters, I think it's um, much more accurate. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a better movie. <laughs> well, there's a weird but, thing that it does, and I can't quite put my finger on the proper words to describe it, but it has this kind of faux, phony attempt at capturing a period sounding dialogue and flavor that's very wild and full of adventure but doesn't quite fit like it's it's old-fashioned but and kind of but hollow all at once and it tries like between like the music and the tone and some of like the figures of speech i often found myself saying like ah like y'all y'all are going for a, a style or a vibe and you're just not quite perfectly capturing what you're going like i've seen the movies that you're trying to capture but you're just not quite making it. And when you don't quite make it, it makes the movie feel kind of like awkward and clumsy. But all the same, like I find myself really enjoying uh, seeing like, um, oh, what's his name? Um, God damn it. Uh, do, 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 do. Who, who, who was the, uh, the Han Solo character in Spaceballs? I'm totally, I mean, he's also in Lost. Oh, Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman. Yeah, like I love seeing Bill yeah. Pullman in this. And I love seeing... Yeah. Uh, and this, once, God damn, I got to just get the movie open on IMDb. I've had all the scotch now and all the names have flown <laughs> out of my fucking head. And I love seeing, uh, God damn it, uh, where is he? Tom Sizemore in there as Bat Masterson. Yeah. Like there's so, yeah, there's so yeah. many great people in here. So there are all these little details, little nuggets in there that I find thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you talk about dialogue, like period dialogue and stuff. One of the things is I think overall, like to go back to Tombstone, I think overall the period dialogue is pretty decent. Um, that scene where he kicks out Johnny Tyler, I love Billy Bob Thornton in that scene. 
I think that the the dialogue they wrote for Wyatt Earp, that's one of those scenes where it seems like they took as much period slang as they could and just loaded it into oh, one. Oh, he's like, I'm, I'm telling you, throw down. Like, pull out that smoke wagon and stroke it or whatever, whatever the, the lines yeah, are. It's so, it, that's the other thing about it. It sounds so homoerotic. He's like skin that smoke wagon and go to work and jerk that pistol. Oh and, yeah. It's, no, it's super gay without a doubt. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I, I don't need, I don't need to go heel to get the bulge on a, on a dub like you. And no, it's they're, like, they're, they're an inch away from him. fucking like, at that point without a doubt. It's yeah. It's so like, like inadvertently like homoerotic. I'm sure like, they were howling with laughter the, at the end of every take. They're like, Oh my fucking God. But yeah, apparently Billy Bob Thornton was improvising a lot of that scene as well with the shit oh, talking he was tell, doing at the table. You could tell he's improvising because he's like, this is like playing cards with my sister's kids or something. And it's like, what does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> that cigar out of my face. But, uh, but yeah. So, but back to Wyatt Earp, I think, yeah, there's those, it's, it tries to be more, I think more realistic, more serious. It's not definitely not as fun as Tombstone. Um, it's giving you the characters with more warts to them, especially the portrayal of Doc Holliday, which is probably the most accurate portrayal of him in a movie. And Dennis Quaid's fine. Uh, it just he got measured up against Val Kilmer, who was so fun that inevitably he was going to kind of come up short. But I do, I'm a big Dennis Quaid fan. Ever since I saw Dreamscape in the theater as a little kid, I was like, this guy's fucking cool. I love Dennis Quaid. And I think if this movie had beaten Tombstone to the theater by six months, people would look at Dennis Quaid in it in a very different light. Well, yeah, I mean, he's so like he's he like I think he developed uh, um, what is it the eating an eating disorder because he lost, he lost thirty so pounds. Much- yeah, he lost thirty pounds for this yeah. movie, and he really gives this a, a really definitely a more authentic portrayal because Bat Masterson described Doc Holliday and said he basically said that any thirteen year old could basically whip his ass <laughs> in a physical fight, and uh, just the drunken, unpleasant aspect of him. Like, like Val Kilmer is so cool in Tombstone, but it's like kind of a foregone conclusion that no one likes him, but Wyatt Earp. But you're like, why not? He's fucking cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's the most charming character in the Wild West. Yeah. You, you, but then like Dennis Quaid, like you understand, like there's no way you'd want to be around that guy. (laughs) That's what's so cool about gunfighters is that what the six shooter allowed physically frail people to be deadly and dangerous. Whereas once upon a time you had to be big, tall, strong, and fast. And that's what made the wild west so interesting is that you could be totally fucked up physically and still be a ruthless killer just by virtue of having the gun. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so, but like, so Kazan is like clearly trying to be more realistic, more serious with the, with the relationships between the characters. And, and uh, overall, I think that's, the, a lot of that stuff works better than what's in Tombstone. The 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 wives, the Earp wives, and the tensions, and the way Earp mistreats his. I mean, we'll get into that. But you have these more realistic aspects of it, the more believable things. But then you have these weird kind of sub Silverado scenes where, like, uh, you know, Wyatt Earp is confronting these drunken cowboys and. It's like each Earp brother comes out of a different doorway. <laughs> like one comes out of the balcony and one comes out of the doorway. Yeah, it's very and theatrical. The same sentence. And it's like, well, what are you, what is this? And then they rehearsed just, it the day before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like I'm going to wait here until this is the, t- you know, for perfect uh, dramatic time. effect. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's so it's like, well, what are they? Why did they do that? And what do you think about the staging of the the gunfight at the OK Corral? Because it's quite different in this compared to Tombstone. Well, these are these are the two movies that get the gunfight at the OK Corral the most accurate. Um, there, there's issues with the, with the way it's portrayed in Wyatt Earp. They have Morgan pulling like two guns at the same time, and um, you know they they've got certain problems. Tombstone probably would be more accurate, but then it has the scene where where Ike Clanton goes into the photography studio and is like having like a little mini shootout with Doc Holliday, which just didn't happen. But I love the wink in Tombstone that is the catalyst because Val Kilmer does his wink and Thomas Hayden Church, his face makes this slight subtle change in, re- in response. Yeah. And Wyatt Earp's like, oh, hell, because he sees what's yeah, about to like, happen. Oh like. Yeah. Everything's so still and it's yeah. it's so beautiful. Whereas in Wyatt Earp, the movie, they're kind of all marching down together and they kind of turn the corner and boom, they're standing there, you know, basically like four guys against six guys, like face to face. And it just doesn't have the same like dramatic punch as some of the other uh, depictions. Like even like in Doc, where they just walk up with them with shotguns and murder them, I think uh, yeah. has more has more dramatic impact for me. Yeah. Well, there's there's a certain appeal to the kind of the clunkiness of the of the wider portrayal of um the okay corral shootout so um that you know that aspect of it i i like but yeah it just it's definitely not it's definitely not like super super exciting yeah it's but but you know that's just one of the things it's like the adventure elements of Wyatt Earp just don't work, or when they try to do those scenes, they just seem weird. So like when, like when like Wyatt Earp is young and he's like driving a stagecoach, and these guys are chasing him, shooting at him, and it's just like what it like this this isn't exciting, and it's it's faux <laughs> exciting. It's it's busy, and there's a lot of stuff going on, but it lacks any real punch. And lots of movies fall into that trap where they think, oh, we, in theory, this should be exciting, but if it's not like essential for driving the story forward, it's just filler. And this is a movie with a sixty-three million dollar budget in nineteen ninety-four. That is an enormous budget, and worldwide gross. 55. I mean, it, it it was not a movie that was embraced by people anywhere. And I remember at the time, it was just, even, and I was totally, utterly oblivious to like industry trends or anything like that. But I remember this movie drawing a lot of heat and people were being very dismissive and very cruel. And I don't know if it deserves to be completely, utterly ridiculed because it does have some good things. But goddamn, it was a, a total career misfire as far as Kevin Costner's like planning of his trajectory was concerned. Well, what I would say is I think that the relationship between Earp and Josephine Marcus is far superior superior in Wyatt Earp uh, to uh, the equivalent scenes in Tombstone. Uh, I think that the I think that the the portrayal of Morgan is is more accurate in Wyatt Earp. He was a hothead. He actually had killed somebody before they went to Tombstone and, and Tombstone kind of has him as this kind of like, you know, wet behind the ears. Morgan is played by Johnny Cage from Mortal Kombat a year later. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I think that the portrayal of uh, Earp's common law, drug addicted common law wife is so much uh, more complex and interesting, and you do feel you feel bad for her because you always gonna get the impression that Wyatt Earp doesn't 
really love her. Um, whereas in Tombstone, you basically just see her as this shrill harpy who's just pushing the Earp's character. Like he's basically backed into the corner. Like he can't win at all. Whereas in Wyatt Earp, you kind of see that he's doesn't treat her particularly well. Yep. And, uh, so I think that stuff is, uh, is, is, is far superior. And I honestly think that I like Kurt Russell better than uh, Kevin Costner overall as just an actor. I think Kevin Costner is a better portrayal of Wyatt Earp. His kind of stilted wooden <laughs> delivery, I feel, is a probably a more realistic representation of the real guy. Like that, he's got some good scenes. I like Kevin. The older I get, the more I like Kevin Costner. When I was a teenager, I really didn't care for him at all. I just, I didn't, I didn't get the hype. Like I would watch movies like no way out and I would watch movies like bull Durham, but I just, for whatever reason, he just wasn't my idea of a movie star. My idea of a movie star back then was fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I just had very different concerns, but I did enjoy watching him when he's in his, in his, like his wider prime. I was having fun with it. So I did enjoy getting to go back and revisit this movie. And I would never necessarily recommend it to people unless they really, I mean, if you're a Lawrence Kasdan completist, if you like the big chill and you like Empire Strikes Back and stuff like that, it's worth considering in terms of uh, Lawrence Kasdan's overall career, but I don't think it did his career any favors. And it certainly didn't do Kevin Costner any favors, but I have no problem whatsoever with Kevin Costner and his interpretation of Wyatt Earp. Once he gets into full-blown lethal mode and once he gets rid of the fucking wig and he's dressing in all black, he's pretty goddamn good. Yeah, I mean, he's such a dick and it's like, you know, like he says to his to his uh, common law wife, you know, that that uh, keep taking that stuff is going to kill you. And she's like, "What do you care?" And he's like, "I don't anymore." Yeah, <laughs> and it's just mean. And like when he says to one of the wives, "Like you don't matter uh, more than the brothers." Yeah, like yeah, like wives come and go, but wives yeah, like, like, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's he's a he's a, a ruthless pragmatist in a lot of ways. So worth a look and definitely worth including in this overall conversation. But let's get down to the most important question of all. Say somebody has never seen a western and they've never heard of Wyatt Earp, and you're sitting them down for a screening and you got a bottle of booze in front of you. What mo- what movie are you going to show them to give them uh, the best possible chance about getting excited about this topic? Wow, to get excited about the topic. Well, oh, that's rough. That's a rough question because I I honestly think that uh, as an overall picture of who Wyatt Earp was, I think that the movie Wyatt Earp is the most accurate. And and someone who was as I was actually a huge fan of the movie Wyatt Earp, who considers it a masterpiece, is Quentin Tarantino. But what? he often has yeah yeah what? he often has weird taste. But he was a huge uh, admirer of the film and that called is it a so bizarre. But well, to, to each their own. I, I don't share his view. <laughs> so, but I would say that hmm, that's 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 interesting because you know. The, the best of the, of the lot would be My Darling Clementine and uh, Law and Order, I think. Um, Those are strong choices. Probably, yeah, and then probably uh, 40 Guns behind those two. But at the same time, those are the ones that they change the names, they change the details. And so um, I think that of those movies, Law and Order probably has the most amount of history in it. So, but... Um, so yeah, that's that's rough. In terms of just cinematic quality, those are the ones that I'd pick. In terms of trying to get a idea of who Wyatt Earp was, I think I think that they might not be the best uh, 
actual films, but I'd say Wyatt Earp, Tombstone, and Doc kind of... I think Wyatt Earp splits the difference between Tombstone and Doc in terms of the portrayal of of, uh, of, of Earp, not as a complete asshole, but not also not as kind of this good guy. So, um, but those are the ones that kind of give you the more a more accurate portrayal, even though they have, you know, many, many inaccuracies. And so, if someone is a hardcore nerd and wants to actually crack open a thing called a book, what would you recommend? <laughs> oh, uh, you know, that's okay. Let me think. Um, I always, I always enjoy, um, the Bob Bose bell, uh, books. He has the illustrated life and times of Wyatt Earp and the illustrated life and times of doc holiday. So those are, those kind of delve in. They're not, there's, they, they kind of, there's a lot of, he's an artist too. So he's got a lot of paintings and things like that. He's got a little historical asides, but it's basically kind of broken down into, um, dates. So he'll have a date, uh, in the historical record. And this kind of the thing that happened on that day. So it's a, it's not like, it doesn't read like, a history, even like a history book or like a novel or anything like that. It's just sort of just raw data series of facts, but it's also very fun too. So I don't, I don't want to portray it too much. Like it's just raw data. Um, there is, I think the book that really, it's tough because, the, because the Stuart Lake book is so full of nonsense. The Frank Waters book was full of nonsense. There was a herb historian named Glenn Boyer, but it turned out he was making a bunch of stuff up too. <laughs> so uh, there's a book by Casey uh, Tefferteller. Um, I, I'm probably saying his name wrong, but that's a wider biography that's pretty good. Um, the books by Alan Barra about Wyatt Earp are good. Um, I'm I'm blanking on titles. There was um, uh, one of Doc Holliday's, I think her name is something, Dora Roberts wrote a book about uh, Holiday, which is I think the – um, pretty much the standard. So I, I would say that those are the ones if you actually, if you actually want to delve into the, the true story. Beautiful. Well, if someone wants to look at some of your wonderfully erotic and stimulating drawings and paintings you've been doing as of late, what's the best place to find you online if they want to talk about movies, art, the West, whatever the case might be? I would say uh, Instagram is is the the best place. Um, you just uh, just look up David Lambert art, just one word. Uh, but Facebook is the same, so look up uh, if you go on Facebook, just David Lambert art. Um, those are the two places where I, where I post uh, post all my artwork. Very so. nice. Well, David, I, we've gone through a little over three hours, and I feel like if I just uh, sat back and got out of your way, we could probably go another three, but I don't want to take advantage <laughs> of your time. So I just can't thank you enough for pitching this cool topic and carving out so much time in your schedule to dive into this, because I, I love and adore Westerns, and I very rarely get to talk to somebody who knows a fuckload more about the topic than I do. So it's just such a treat to sit back and get the David Lambert Western experience. Well, hey, it's always fun to, to uh, just uh, you know go off on tangents uh you know there's probably very few people that actually uh know me in person that want to hear all this stuff so <laughs> well one day we'll uh, we'll find a nice saloon or speakeasy out in california and we'll sit back and we'll kill a bottle of booze together and talk about westerns and have ourselves a uh, a fine time but once again i just can't thank you enough for wanting to come on wrong reel for our 450th episode to talk about Wyatt Earp. it's been a hell of a lot of fun well thank you it's an honor 
Excellent. Well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. Check, definitely check out some of David Lambert's work online. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. You can find me on Twitter at Colbrax. And if you want to see some videos, go to my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. But if you're going to take away anything from this episode, just watch some of these movies. You're going to have an absolute blast. I agree that My Darling Clementine and Law and & Order are well worth watching. And 40 Guns, holy shit, that is a very wild, entertaining movie as well. So you really can't go wrong with any of the above. But I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap the sucker up. We've gone enough. So, as always, onwards and upwards. Here lies less more, four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. Out in Arizona, just south of Tucson, where tumbleweeds tumble in search of a home. There's a town they call Tombstone, where the brave never cry. They live by a six-gun, by a six-gun they die. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>